Radio Mano Papachango. From a place called Bay Horse, Idaho. I am uh, along the Salmon River. Spent the night last night at a campsite along the Salmon River. Jumped up, not jumped up, got up, jumped in the river first thing in the morning, which is, uh, in my opinion, the perfect way to start a day. Oh, yeah. Cold as hell, I gotta tell you. Uh, definitely Wim Hofen at this trip. Lots of jumping in cold rivers. It's been a fantastic trip so far. Uh, came up the um, coast of California. Uh, I'm sitting in a parking lot, by the way, which is why you're hearing cars going by. Uh, I'm in the bar- I'm in the parking lot of a ghost town, Bay Horse. Google it. It's an old mining town from the 1870s. Uh, I just recorded a video that uh, you'll be getting a link to if you're a Patreon supporter. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you're fucked. You don't get to see the video I just recorded. God damn. For only a dollar a month, you could see that amazing video that I recorded for as little as a dollar a month. Of course, more than a dollar a month is most welcome, but as little as a dollar a month gets you that incredible bonus material so what was i saying oh yeah i'm in this ghost town bay horse really cool uh anyway yeah so the trip up the california coast a couple podcasts in santa cruz another one in uh mendocino with a a tim scully this acid chef uh cook and then uh went to Lassen National Park in Northern California, which is spectacular. If you haven't been there, it's really something. It looks a lot like Yosemite, but maybe a tenth as many people. Um, So that was really cool. And went over the pass there the first day it opened in July, which is a historically late day to open the pass. And uh, then what? Then uh, into Eastern Oregon, up into Idaho, I'm really digging Idaho, I got to say. I mean, I know it's famous for rednecks and potatoes, but uh, it's beautiful, beautiful country. And lots of campsites, uh, campgrounds, very cheap. I paid 10 bucks last night. Beautiful place, you know, bathrooms, running water, fire pits, grill. Uh, Six to 10 bucks seems to be the going rate for these things. So if you've got a van... Uh, and, you know, every night you're paying, which you don't pay every night because lots of nights you're in somebody's driveway or you just pull over somewhere, you know, you're not near a, a campground or whatever. But if, you, if you've if you got a van and you decide that you're going to be, uh, you know, spending significant time at campgrounds, you're only spending, uh, what, 300 bucks a month at most to be in a spectacular place. So, uh, it's really nice. Anyway, around that point, I had the bright idea of tweeting that I was going to Glacier National Park, and if anyone knew, anyone had any advice or whatever, let me know. And I got an email from a guy named Jonathan, 
who invited me to drop by his place and said, hey, maybe we can float down the river. And I said, that sounds great. And so he rolled into Jonathan's driveway about 2.30 in the afternoon. And Jonathan and Jillian and Connor, their buddy, had a raft, uh, two paddle boards, a bag of beers and snacks, family-sized pretzels. I mean, you name it, it was there. We went out and floated down the Flathead River, and it was one of the best days of my life, I got to say. Everything was just perfect. I mean, the water temperature was perfect. The, The amount of rapids versus calm, quiet stretches, perfect. The intensity of the white water, perfect. Like, enough to be fun, but not enough to be dangerous. Uh, the sun, perfect. But most importantly, well, beer, I mean, they had IPAs in a bag dragging in the river. IPA is my jam. Somehow they knew it. But the most perfect thing is you roll into someone's driveway, you don't know them, you're going to be spending the next four hours on the river with them. It could be weird, right? It could be awkward. It could be uncomfortable. Who knows? They're the coolest people ever. I I would there's nowhere I'd rather be there's no one I'd rather be with they were the most wonderful people uh and and not wonderful in like a sweet treacly way either great sense of humor funny subversive uh anyway I love this fucking podcast because because people like you are listening to it anyway so it was a great time uh really had a good time with them and then uh Spent ended up spending two nights in their driveway, met their cool little guys Theo and uh, Augie. Augie's a performer. I posted a photo of him uh, on my Instagram account. So if uh, you follow me on Instagram, you saw Augie looking like the front man to a crazy band. Um, anyway, so that's what's going on. Uh, heading east right now to Portland for the Float Tank Conference that's coming up this weekend, where I'll be doing a live podcast recording with Duncan Trussell, and uh, hopefully we'll do a, either he'll let me use that, release that on this podcast, or we'll do a, a separate one together, and I'll release that on here eventually. Uh, last bit of housekeeping, if anybody has any Burning Man tickets, or vehicle passes, uh, please let me know if you're willing to let them go. You're not going to use them or whatever. Uh, thanks to Stephanie, whose last name I won't say because I don't know if she's cool with that, but a lovely woman named Stephanie and her husband hooked me up with a couple of tickets. Uh, so I'm I'm going. Looks like I'm going. Uh, and a guy named Tom in in uh, Bend is hooking me up with another ticket. So my friends Oliver and Cheryl are going. Oliver is the guy who basically renovated this van while I stood there and handed him whatever tool he was requesting. Uh, and uh, and his lovely wife Cheryl, good friends from L.A., they're going. Uh, and so my buddy Tao is going and a bunch of his friends. So we're going to have a little camp there, I think. Um, but we still need a few tickets. I, I don't know how many, but we're still short a few tickets and a few vehicle passes. So if you have any extra tickets you're not going to be using or you know someone who does, uh, please let me know through the website. You can go to chrisryanphd.com, click on Chris, you'll see a contact form, 
and maybe just put Burning Man tickets in the subject uh, heading. So I make sure to look at that right away. Uh, I think that's it for the housekeeping. This episode is the first of four that I recorded in North Carolina at uh, Sparkroot Farm. If you want to know more about Sparkroot Farm, which you will after listening to this, guaranteed, uh, go to the new website that Elisa has just set up, which is villageatthebend.com. And uh, you'll see lots of information about what they're doing there. It's a pretty incredible place. What they're doing is is essentially community building. And you're going to hear in this episode uh, a lot about how it started and and uh, particularly in this latest iteration uh in practical terms they're accepting woofers they're teaching woofers are by the way world organization of organic farming i think is what woof stands for and so it's you go and you help out on the farm and you learn stuff um and food and board is provided generally uh in exchange for your your labor so it's a great way to meet people, get around, uh, learn things uh, without spending a lot of money. Anyway, uh, you'll see all that kind of information at villageatthebend.com. Uh, this conversation runs the gamut. I know I say this a lot on this podcast. This is a very special episode, and I mean it every time. And uh, this time I mean it even more than usual um, Elisa's, you're going to hear the last few years of Elisa's life have contained every shade from the most brilliant light to the darkest dark. Um, yeah, revelation, laughter, humor, beauty, tragedy, surprise, grief, despair. You name it, pick an adjective, pick an emotion, uh, and it's been present in her life in these last few years. And as often happens in this podcast, I feel that um, so grateful that uh, I get to meet people like this and get to spend time and become part of their lives and have them become part of my life. Um, and I think you'll hear in this conversation the beginning of a, of a true friendship um, between Elisa and me. And I guess that's all I'm going to say about this. Um, this is, as I said, the first of four episodes that I recorded at the, at the farm. Uh, two of them are with African guys uh, who... Uh, Kabui and Godi, I think is the other guy's name. I, I don't have notes with me right now. Um, but uh, uh, one guy's from Kenya, the other guy's from Congo. Super interesting dudes. Grew up in African villages and they're part of this community and they're sort of consultants on how a village works because in America we don't really know. It's sort of a lost art. So one of the things they're doing at Sparkroot Farm is village building and learning how to have a village function as an organic, healthy being. But they're also doing very practical things like 
sustainable agriculture. Um, uh, they're, they've got pigs, they've got chickens, they've got uh, goats, I believe. I think I remember seeing goats. And uh, they're also holding seminars. And a guy named Stephen Jenkinson, who you may have heard of, who's a world-famous authority on, I don't know if it's fair to say a death necessarily, but I think that's what a lot of his books have been about. I think he's moving away from death specifically and more into um, just sort of... uh, mindful living, which of course requires an awareness of death. So there is a connection there. Anyway, he's going to be at the farm at Sparkroot Farm, November 3rd and 4th. And uh, they're selling tickets for that. So if you want to meet these people, hang out at the farm a little bit, and also sit in on some, um, some seminars that are being given by Stephen Jenkinson, that would be an excellent opportunity. There's uh, a live ticket link at villageatthebend.com. And lastly, if you want to support the uh, the activities at Sparkroot Farm, they've got a, a Patreon account set up. It's brand new. Just look for Sparkroot on Patreon and you can contribute to help them with their world-changing endeavors. They're, they're you know, there's that old line, think globally, act locally. If you want to change the world, change yourself, change your relationships, change your neighborhood, that's what they're doing. Um, and you're going to hear a lot about how this whole thing got started in this conversation with Elisa Esposito. So thank you again for all your support. I will stop yammering now and just bring you right into the conversation. And I'm going to play one of my favorite songs, um which is Green Grass. Uh, this version is by Sibel. I played it on a, another podcast way back when, um, but it deserves to be played many, many times. And I'm going to play... It's The song is originally written by Tom Waits. I'm going to play the Tom Waits version uh, on another episode that I'm doing from Sparkroot Farm with Lyle. Uh, and you'll... You'll understand why when you hear that episode. Uh, Anyway, I don't know if that'll be the the fourth or the third, or I don't know which one it'll be, but you'll hear another version of this song uh, a few episodes down the road. So this is Sibel. The song is called Green Grass, and it's written by Tom Waits. Thank you so much for your support in uh, whatever way you manifest it, telling your friends, money, reviews, or just every once in a while nodding your head and saying, God damn, Chris, that was a good fucking podcast. That's enough for me. Thanks. Bye. Lay your head where my heart used to be On the earth above me down in the green grass Remember when you loved me Come closer, don't be shy Stand beneath the rainy sky The moon is over the rise 
of me as a train goes by Clear the tissues and brambles Whisper didn't hear Rambo Now there's a bubble of me And it's floating in the Shade of me, things are no made of me. The weather thing will say it smells like rain today. God took the stars and he tossed them. Can't tell the birds from the blossoms. He'd never be free of me. Make a tree from me Don't say goodbye to me Describe the sky to me And if the sky falls Mark my words We'll catch mockingbirds Everything is working. And now I'm just going to get my coffee. And everything is beautiful. All right. So here we are in, where the hell are we? I know we're in North Carolina, but... We're actually in Moncure. Moncure, mm -hmm. North Carolina. And I'm with Alisa Esposito who, as much as I hate Facebook, I have to give Facebook credit for introducing me to you or, or giving you an avenue to say hi to me or whatever it was. Absolutely. I think uh, it was on my Facebook fan page. 
Was it? I don't know. <laughs> I hate to call you a fan. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I have, like, a personal page for my cousins, so I can see my cousins, you uh -huh. know, and their dumb kids and stuff. But then... Not that their kids are dumber <laughs> than anyone else's kids. I just, you know. Yeah, I'm, it's good for that, too. Facebook. I'm a curmudgeon, yeah. you know how it is. Uh, but, yeah, you, it was a long time ago that I first became aware of you. Yeah, I, um, I actually did a, I came to this little town of Pittsburgh a couple years ago, and I, um, we have a, we're like the smallest town in on the Peshawkasha circuit. On the what? Peshawkasha. Is that so, like a, a stock car racing circuit? It's or? actually like a community storytelling event, and you have oh. um, you have you have to follow the guidelines of the like worldwide Peshawkasha thing, and so it's six six. Uh, it's 20 seconds to slide and a certain number of slides and the slides just keep moving and my topic was sex and empire. And a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was your book informing the, the gist of it, which was that um, the, con the growth of empires built on um, redirected sexual energy. And so that was a really great talk and I think the town really enjoyed it and it got on YouTube and mm. and I wanted you to hear it I wanted you to know that you know yeah. you're you're yeah it's a big it's a big deal this this dismantling civilization stuff and it starts with yeah. um, I think sex and death is is the root of it all so I think it's really important to uh, to expose that and, and think about it and kind of bring it out there in the light to look at and and wonder about what was the so. thesis do you remember how 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 is empire redirected sexual energy is it sort of a freudian thing civilization as you know repressed sexual energy then erupting into violence and domination or do you remember how you what your angle was I know, I know it's hard to remember these things once you get done with it. You're like, whew, don't have to think about yeah, it anymore. Yeah, that's kind of what it is, but yeah. it's, um, but, I mean, those are, sex and death are the two big taboos, and original sin is, you know, kind of the founding, even if we don't believe it, even if we say that uh, we are not Christian or we don't take that religion or we, you know, those, but those, those kind of, uh, doctrines we're just we're marinated in them even if we don't mm. believe in them we're yeah. marinated in the consequence of them and uh, right. so control of um, you know human sexuality that really in our society is a result of um, of agriculture and inheritance and having to you know keep track of um, of uh, land and and who to pass things on to that just that that's a that's a control system that's required. It's just it's the it's in the architecture of, of how we acquire more land and more stuff and it's it's so and then you've got the the Protestantism on top of that, which is um, you know, you you can't you must keep working, you know, idle hands and right. idle hands in the devil's workshop and you've got to Because uh, they'll touch your junk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's all in there, and it's and it's. I don't think it's um. It's really. I don't think it's anything that anybody really wants to 
it didn't start out, I don't think, with any kind of nefarious plan. It's just, it's just how, how to keep this thing going. You know, it's yeah, it's how it happens. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I think you're right. I, this sense, I mean, original sin is really toast, closely tied to the notion of opposition to the natural world. I think. You know, because we, you know, as I'm often yammering about on this podcast and elsewhere, it's like there's inner nature and outer nature. And we've been told that they're both dangerous and, and want to ruin us. You know, yeah. like if you give way to your inner nature, you'll be a murderous, raping, pillaging maniac. Yeah. According to the Hobbesian narrative. Yeah. And outer nature, meanwhile, is full of things that want to suck your blood and burrow into you and, you know, exactly. rip you apart and red in tooth and claw and all that. And so what's so interesting about that is like, wait a minute, if outer nature is not me and hates me and wants to kill me and eat me and my inner nature is not me and I need to be suspicious of that, what am I? You need right? to be fixed. Well, also, I'm fucked up, you know, definitely, mm -hmm. but what am I? Who is the me that all these things are in opposition to? Right. It's a, it's a non-physical, because my body's my enemy, too, right? Because my yeah. body wants me to fucking shit and, you know, do all these <laughs> things. All these biological things that are ugly, not... These ugly, horrible, mm -hmm. shameful things. So what, what am I? Where am I in this? I'm, I'm some, like, angel? Exactly. And that whole narrative, just from the get-go... You're, you cannot trust yourself. You are not right. to be trusted. The world is not to be trusted. Right. Nobody around you is to be trusted. Your children need to be beaten into submission. Absolutely. Their natures are their enemies and yeah. yours as a responsible parent, right? Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a fucked up way to live. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see, I mean, we, when we submit our children to the system... Um, and all the controls of the system, we are we think, oh, well, we're not going to church, so that's not a that's not part of my thing. I'm, right. But you are still submitting your child to a system right. that right. requires them to stand in line and right. ask to go to the bathroom right. and get a hall pass and go home and, and don't you know, touch do your, themselves and get and submit them to yeah. grading. Right. To grading. Right. Get, get so used to being up. compared. You know, get used to striving for approval of these right. arbitrarily chosen authority figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, you know, those of us lucky enough not to have been raised explicitly in a, you know, in a Catholic tradition or, you know, whatever. Uh, we think we're out of it. We're not out of it. We're, it's everywhere. No, it's everywhere. It's no, I mean, you submit yourself to 15,000 hours, 15, 18,000 hours of, of your developmental years to a to assist to a compulsory system that tells you every minute that you can't trust yourself you must submit to be graded and all of that like that right. that's just that's just yeah then you get into like there there is i think free will but when you're when you live in a world where you don't know that for your developmental years and you don't you don't learn that you had that there's anything to be trusted in this world then you know you just kind of uh an automaton really unless you decide to st sit and stop and and dismantle the thing you know Which, through wondering i mean how many children you, you can't expect that of a child no no know? no not a child but you 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 can expect that of a that's what grown-ups do and ideally it should it, do it, it, yeah you know should but you know as we've just established 
adults are, uh, you know, the result of mm -hmm. an entire childhood <laughs> and exactly. being shaped not to do that. I know. You know, precisely do not do that. Yeah. You know, I was saying the other day on one of these Roma podcasts or something, like one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is that I don't own a single tie. Oh, nice. You know, and I yeah. haven't worn a tie. I can't remember. The, I think yeah. I may have worn a tie as a joke to some party in the 80s or something, you know, mm -hmm. just to all my friends go, ah, Chris has a tie on. But I can't remember. I mean, I think probably like when I worked in the Diamond District in 1985, six was the last time I wore a tie, you know. And what is a tie? It's oh, a I fucking know. choke collar. Yeah. It's, it's a it's sign a of submission. Uh-huh. You know, and, and it's this weird, and also I love how it's like the only bit of color yeah, that on you're these allowed. gray suits. And you have to put it on yourself. Oh. Is that worse, that you have to put it on yourself? or, or Oh, yeah, you it's worse, because then you're, you're, you're participating in your own enslavement. Well, yeah. what if, what if the, the ritual were that you showed up to work with your tie and your boss put it on you every morning? <laughs> it would be worse. It's much easier for your boss. That's right. You're, like, so you, you're a you little get... late, Chris. Step up. <laughs> we're going to tighten this a little extra tight today. <laughs> get with the program. And then I love how it's like a loving thing that your wife will do your tie yeah, for yeah. you. Well, let me do that for you, honey. Yeah. Let me loop you into submission to the man so you can yeah. bring home more money and we can go to a vacation in Cabo. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, I know. Anyway. It's dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've griped about the modern world, we've gotten that out of the way. So you're from Chicago originally? Yeah. You're a... I'm from consumer culture suburbs of Chicago. The yeah, the endless sprawl. You're of a malls suburban and, girl. Yeah, I lived in the city for a while when I decided to move downtown for a few years. When I was left early, when I was 17, and lived there till I was 21. Why, down in the, why down did the you city. leave early? Um, I just wanted to get on with my. I wanted to. I don't know. I I went down to to the city to work as a model for a while and I didn't like that and so I ended up being a studio manager for a photographer and um, that's why didn't you like being a model that's the perfect life glamour no, I didn't like it attention I, I felt stupid in front of the camera I didn't like <laughs> moving around and wiggling around and smiling when I didn't want to and yeah. shit like that it just felt ridiculous I know it is ridiculous you're doing catalog work yeah so, yeah which was even worse so what like underwear and shit oh, like that oh that really awful. I'll do yeah. that again That's no, good. no I for won't. those of you who are Patreon <laughs> contributors and can see the video of this you just saw I hope there, I hope that was a close up when you did that uh, <laughs> what was that? Yeah, you're, I have a picture of myself, I think. Like, and I, I don't, Show me cute and surprised? Yeah, that yeah, that? cute yeah. and surprised over your, your, your cute little catalog clothes. From you're wearing like Montgomery a sundress Wards. or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh. Well, I'm going to go back in my mom's old Selling. catalogs and see if I can find some... I can said? say I was in Playgirl, Playboy. Oh. Playgirl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, but this not, but it was like, because Chicago had its head, or uh, Playboy had its headquarters in Chicago. Uh -huh. So um, I went down there for a casting call once and I ended up in the um, very last page of the men's fashion section. So I wasn't naked. I was just like this girl on the back of you a bike. You were an adornment. Yeah. 
the girl on a bike. Yeah. Do you remember which which issue? It was like I don't know, but this was like 1988, so sometime in 1988. Guys, go back into the, <laughs> in the catalog. I, I used I to have a box of Playboys. I I, I kind of learned about a lot of my sexual. God, this is sad, but I, my whole life can probably be explained by Playboy in some respect. Because I had, my dad got Playboy, and I used to steal it from under his bed and, you know, mm -hmm. read it when I was a little kid. This is before internet porn. Yeah. These were, it was a simpler time, you know. And, uh, but Playboy, I mean, it was very materialistic, you know. You got to get this motorcycle and these, this cool yeah, coat yeah. and all that. But as far as the sexual politics of it went, it was actually pretty cool, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, maybe people will slam me for thinking that, but yes, it objectified women, clearly, right? But the, like the advisor, the Playboy advisor, which I always read, <clears throat> which is where people would write in and they're having problems with this or that. Uh, actually, I think uh, Susie Bright wrote that for a while. I think she told me she... It was always unsigned, you know, but I think so different people. It was like Lassie. There would be different Lassies that came and went over the years. But um, I don't know. Is that a weird connection, connecting Lassie to a sex advice <laughs> column? I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to figure that out. <laughs> what I'm, should I do, Lassie? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, really, just do what Lassie does and everything Jimmy's, will be yeah, fine. Doggy style. It's always the answer. <laughs> doggy style. Trust me on this. Uh yeah, what the fuck am I talking about? Oh, the 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 sort of attitude of Playboy of, um, you know, it was pretty respectful and it was uh, like be a nice guy, don't don't be a sh schmuck, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know. Anyway, I don't know. I don't I don't want to get into this, but um, much more than hustler, for example. Yeah, this is territory I don't know very well. You haven't been in hustler. I mean, not yet. <laughs> No. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, I don't think so. I think those days are done. My uh, literary agent also represents Larry Flint. Oh, yeah? So if you want to meet him, I've got a connection. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, I like, kind of like it out here in the woods. Larry Flint likes it out here in the woods, too. You ever see the movie, The what was it called? Yeah, that was ages ago. The People ago. versus Larry Flint. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's an interesting film. Anyway, let's not get off onto Larry Flint. Yeah. Okay. Although he'd enjoy it. Mm -hmm. if we, yeah. Anyway, uh, so Chicago modeling, mm -hmm. you didn't like it. You mm -hmm. started managing a photography studio so you could draw other victims into the modeling life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I would book the models and I also worked as a um, building the sets and hiring the hair and makeup and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that. You you and the photographer became a couple, and mm -hmm. then Hyde yeah. held it down to Florida on yeah, a we bank did. robbing spree. No, Is we that? just took our. I, I remember driving my. Um, oh God, it was a Oldsmobile Cutlass. Hey, I it had was, a Cutlass. Yeah. Was it a Cutlass Supreme? Probably. Oh. And it and it had. Yeah. It. Uh, I've got to tell this story. Yeah. It was. Um, it was yellow. And it had big, big, like rust spots on it that were mm. all just all over it. So it like looked resembled a giraffe or something. And it had one red door that was dented, and it had um, that vinyl on the roof that was tearing off. And so when I drive, it would just kind of flap. 
<laughs> in the breeze. And, um, and the back seat was like, the foam was popping out of the yeah. ripped seams and, and everything. Fancy. But we lived in a place um, where, you know, it was a photography studio, so we needed like, we had 5,000 square foot of open space. It was like a, an old mm. factory. And so we lived mm. in a place that was just not, um, it wasn't easy on vehicles. Like if you had a nice one, it gets stripped. So anyway, we Chicago, didn't care anyway. We didn't care about having a nice vehicle. We right. had, I had a 1971 Buick Electra deuce and a quarter that could like stop on a dime and take off on a dime. And it was like, we just had these ridiculous vehicles. And um, so I remember one morning leaving uh, to go to the suburbs to visit my mother, you know, driving these big like wrecked ridiculous cars out there to the perfect kind of suburbs and parking that shit right outside right out front you know <laughs> people are calling the cops <laughs> so but i'm leaving one morning and i it's sunday morning it's quiet and i hear screaming and it's coming from the alley that's next to the um next to the building and r so we'd have like in this area like we'd have these crazy like one time we had to my my partner at the time, this photographer, he had a, he had a gun in the house and in the studio. And there was this woman just getting her face beat into the gravel outside. The guy was going to rape her. He climbed up the ladder to look out the little portal window that we could see in the middle of the giant glass block windows. And, and I hear the screaming, I wake up and I hear gunshot and he shoots the gun into the viaduct just to, just to make a gunshots your boyfriend did yeah just to make a sound of a gunshot right. because this guy was gonna Attract kill this woman no i mean there's no police around there this uh. is like yeah so anyway the, the the guy gets off of her jumps into his running vehicle and just leaves and she's on the ground like with gravel in her face her face is speed to a pulp and so that happens in the in the parking lot outside and at, at night, during the day, it's like a very busy trucking, trucks are coming in and out, you know, beep, 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 and the, mm. you know, everything, all this activity. But during the evening, nothing. And so we have like packs of wild dogs going by. And like one time there was a vehicle out in that parking lot that was just in flames, just burning. Um, you'd hear the squeaky wheel of like a homeless guy, like with his cart full of stuff, like going down to sleep by the tracks. And then, um, and then right down at Lake and Ogden, there was all the street hookers, and they would bring their tricks into the alleyway in between our building and the next one. So you could you hear them out there, and it's like, oh, there they are. You know, you see like the activity of what was going on in between the looking down into the window, you know, blowjob happening, or and then you'd find like condoms, used condoms and stuff all over. Anyway, I was leaving on this Sunday morning to go visit my mother, and I hear the screaming, and this woman, this, ho this hooker is running for her life, like in high heels. She looks like Hill Street Blues, like mm. her wig is fucking crooked, and she's got a mini, she looks like one of the like, like fucked up Mary Jane girl. Mm. And, um, and so I stop, and I'm like, can I help you with anything? And she's like, and my dog's in the back seat, and he loves to, he loves to um, ride in the car. So mm. he's like, yeah, we're going. And he's like back and forth, back and forth, wind, this window, that window, this window, that window. And the woman's like looking in the back seat going, I can't get in there with a the dog. Like she wasn't going to get in there with the dog. So um, I'm like, okay, get in the front seat, you know, come on, let's go. She's like, there's a guy after me, you know, I got to, I, I, like, okay. And she's like wasting time. 
get in the seat, get, get in the car. And she just looking at the dog like she's not getting in the car. So you remember the description of my, of my car. Yeah. Yellow, red door, right. flap and vinyl. Right. Well, imagine a hooker on the front of, on the, on the, um, <laughs> she jumped on the, on the hood. On the hood. <laughs> 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 so she's, she's, she's like, gonna sled it. She's like, I'm no, I'll just get on the hood. Yeah. So she jumps on the hood, <laughs> and I'm I'm like, okay, let's go. I'm taking. I'm gonna take her down to her corner. Mini and, skirt flapping in the breeze. <laughs> yeah. And she's um, she's holding on, man, because there's there's potholes and there's like railroad tracks <laughs> and there's like a set of dead tracks and there's more potholes and I know the, I know how it is because so I'm like trying to look out and drive careful and everything right. and not knock her off. And the guy's and on like, foot who's chasing her. I hadn't seen the guy. Oh. We were going, I guess you know, right fast enough that he never appeared on the scene. Wow. But. And then I got to the next set of tracks that I knew were going to knock her off. And I was like, listen, you've got to get off of there and get in the car. So she finally did. And, uh, and then I found out that she, that the guy um, wanted his money back, wanted his 20 bucks back because she couldn't get him off. Is that how that works? Is there a satisfaction guarantee with hookers? <laughs> I've, I've never negotiated that sort of deal. I don't know. No. Anyway, yeah. that's what happened, and I dropped her off at the corner and went on to my mom's and told her the story. Oh, like mom. It was, like, hey, mom. How was your day, honey? Oh, well, thanks for asking, mom. <laughs> no, and I told her, like, it I was... I had a hooker at on the, the hood time, of my it was car. No, like, now I can look back and think, I kind of want to paint that scene, because yeah. it had to be epic, but I can't... But at the time, it was just another day. At the time, it was just, like, day. another day, so yeah. I just went home and told my mom about how I was late because of this thing, and, and you know, she's still, like... <laughs> Well, if you're, if the guy chasing her had been a cop, you could be in jail now. Right. You'd be like, you know, what, what would they call that? Assisting in the commission of a felony oh, or something. You <laughs> right, know? right. I hadn't thought of that. You, you were the getaway driver. I was the getaway car. Yeah. Although in court, it would be great to hear that in court, you know, like, well, but she didn't. No, no, Your Honor. Objection. The the suspect did not get in the car. She got on the car. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Does that count? Let's see. And then and you'd be arguing. No, I didn't stop. To, she, I stopped to see if she was all right. And she just, and she jumped, just on jumped on the car. On the car. Yeah. I didn't invite her to, Your Honor. <laughs> I was a victim. There was a hooker jumped on my car. What was I to do? Okay, yeah. so I don't know why I got off on that story. You asked me something about. Oh, so I, we drove that we drove that car down to Florida, and it didn't. Wow. Ha no, that's not true. No. Oh, shit, I uh -oh. should tell what really happened. Right oh, tell what at really happened. Point, we at can one edit point, it though, out. I really did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I really did uh, drive it to Florida, and it had the wrong plates. I the plates were expired, so I took plates from another car, stuck it on that car. Oh, um, statute of limitations. And, and the, the it's those, done. You know, it was like. And, yeah. it, and I didn't have a driver's license. Oh. And, like, everything was wrong about it. Like, I just, but still, I made it to Florida. You were, and then when, you were a when, crazed child. When we were done with that car. What kind of fashion model were you? I wasn't, see? <laughs> I couldn't you, do Your it. teeth are so straight, though. Look at that. I never had braces. Really? No. You're just born with These the perfect too. smile. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Okay, so when we were, I'll tell you what I did with the car when we were done with the car. All right, we you do? drove it you down. burned it we in drove, a swamp. No, we no. drove it down to the, um, we drove it down kind of to like the edge of the loop where the big train station is, you know, where everybody drive, where everybody gets on and goes to the suburbs. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, Metro we're talking Miami or here or, or Chicago? train station, like the big train station in Chicago. Chicago, okay. Yeah. And we drove it down there at like 
we scratched the vehicle identification number off of it and took off the plates and just drove it down there and parked it at the parking lot. Park it in, park it on the street. Did <laughs> you leave the keys in it? Uh, no, and this wasn't my idea. This was like, this was... Why, why would you do that instead of... I guess... You could get 500 bucks know. for scrap metal or something. I don't something. know why. I just, I was like, well, this is what we're doing, you know? Hmm. I was 17 and, and the photographer that I was with was 34 and they're like, okay, we're going to Florida. My and God, we're gonna a man this. twice your age. That's scandalous. Yeah. Yeah, but that, you know when you're running from illegal. the suburbs and you know you've got your your <laughs> textbook daddy issues on your heels, that's the way it goes. Was was your daddy a textbook salesman? Nobody was a salesman. Was he? What did he mm -hmm. sell? He sold appliance parts for Maytag and like. Oh, he his was the lonely was, Maytag guy. He was like he worked for ITW Fastex, and he mm -hmm. that company made little tiny parts that appliance companies needed right. to build their appliances. So right. he would go go around and sell those. He would he was a traveling salesman. He he'd go all over the the south mostly, I think. Hmm. Selling that shit. Right. And it makes us have a lot of compassion for him now that I, I you know it's a it's like it's gotta be difficult, you know? Like I, I had a lot of anger for years about um you know, not seeing him and him getting remarried and having uh, clearly chosen his new family, and I just felt like a, an inconvenience. And were you the only no, child? No, my sister and I. Yeah. So, so two would, girls with your mother, and then he. How old were you when they split? They divorced when I was nine. Oh, that's really hard. That's a bad time, right? Yeah. So um, I can remember having nightmares. My, you know, like every other couple, my parents would have arguments sometimes, and. I can remember literally having nightmares that they were going to get divorced. I was so terrified mm -hmm. of the possibility. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Yeah, I was a daddy's girl too. Like wound. I I loved like I just loved to like go fishing with him and and catch frogs with him and be out camping in the woods and and uh and then that all just kind of crumbled and and then I I I see him like once every couple of weeks and I just you know, it just felt like a side note, and uh, mm. so, but, and there, you know, there was some things that happened and were said that really, I think, scarred me deeply for a long time, but now I, I don't even, I don't even need to talk about them, it's just because I, I look at the man that, that was just doing his best in this, in this world where, you know, we're just, we're just not allowed to be human, you know, and we're just, you know, meant to like pay yeah. the mortgage and and uh, pay the rent and buy the groceries and get the health insurance and you know make sure everybody's happy and like uh, it's just a it's just a cage it's a it's a a cage of accumulation and and coping and uh, so I don't you're good a cage of accumulation and coping that's almost poetry right there <sighs> thanks that's like Jesse Jackson shit. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that alliteration? Is that a Chicago thing? Yeah. You, you Chicago people. That's good. A cage of, of, a cage of alliteration. Accumulation. A cage of accumulation and coping. No, I just thought of that just now. I've never said that before. I'm going to use that in Civilized to Death, and good. people are going to say, oh, Chris, you're such a great writer. And I'll be like, yep. <laughs> Came up with that one all on my own. <laughs> I'll edit it out of this just to make, cover my tracks, you know. <laughs> uh, 
So, okay, so you're you were living with your mom. Was she working, or how was how were you, she supporting the suburban lifestyle? Uh, Did she, she remarried? remarried oh, and okay. they, yeah, they were like they were typesetting back before there were computers. So they were like putting together magazines, like by cutting out text and laying it, and you know right. however they did. And, and, and what then, was your relationship like with your stepfather? Uh, I was trying. Yeah, I just really couldn't wait to get out of out of there. That's Are you the I older sister or younger? Oldest. You're yeah. older. Mm-hmm. Well, I left when I was 17 and moved downtown. And Did your sister get pissed off about that? Um, I don't really know. I didn't really, I left and I didn't really talk to anybody for about six years probably. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We moved to Florida and I worked for, we, we spent every last mm-hmm. bit of savings so I could, um, so we could, like we tried to make a go of doing photography in Miami, but it just wasn't for either one of us. Really. We Did you like marry it. this guy? No, 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 no. No, I just stayed with him for eight years. He was a raging alcoholic. <clears throat> and, um, but he was just sad. I mean, his, his, his uh, family life was dreadful, too. Like, everyone in his family is an addict. His, his parents were crazy. They were... So it's just another kind of, you know, cage of accumulation and coping over there that resulted in his particular... Uh, yeah. Psychosis, right. or lunacy, or and you guys sort of resonated in some ways. Yeah, and we and I loved animals, and I loved working with critters and helping mm. small forgotten things. You know, so right. I I I know now looking back that my my need, like we worked for this wildlife rehabilitation center in Fort Lauderdale, which is still still there. It's called the Wildlife Care Center, and there were like ten thousand animals a year that would go through there, and my the thing that I could do that no one else could do was raise these little tiny precocial shorebirds. So they, they hop out of the egg and they start running around after the parents and learning pretty quickly how to pick things up. But they get really stressed really easily. Mm. And so people would find them running around and think that they were um, like falling out of the nest or whatever. So, but they, they were fine, and but they wanted to help, and so mm. they grab the things. Were perfectly fine, healthy birds, and they bring them into this place. And then after a few hours, they would be dead because they'd pe- just sit there peeping, peeping, peeping oh. for their parents, and never know and never learn how to and be stressed to the max right, and never learn right. how to pick up their own food. But I, um, it's kind of one of my proudest things that I was able to take such care and create the perfect kind of natural place for them to I wasn't forcing them to eat worms to mm. keep them alive like I had to create a a little world for them where they felt safe where they didn't feel the stress where they couldn't perceive what was outside of this natural world that I built for them and I would not let them see me and I would just drop worms in front of them so that they like little mealworms so that they would catch the catch that little movement would catch their eye and they'd go get it and I'd be like okay that one's eaten it knows how to do it and it's going to be fine and I had like I don't know I probably raised I don't know 50 60 of those birds uh, it was a number of different types of them and um, so I'm just realizing now that that's that's I, I hadn't realized that, you know. I was I was just gonna say the writer in me has just come up with the metaphor for your life, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Just now, I'm realizing that I had um, that what I'm doing here is trying to do here is what what I was doing there on a micro scale. 
Right. Yeah, I think that was really formative for me. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't articulate it until just this moment that that's kind of what I've been on the heels of all of my life. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the insight that you can't force. I remember there's some some quote somewhere like you can't. Um, the the it was something like I'm paraphrasing, but it was like uh, the key to being a great teacher isn't knowing how to teach; it's knowing how to create an environment in which learning can happen. Yeah. Right. And so, like your insight is. You don't force them to eat. You create an environment where they're comfortable enough, mm-hmm. and you mimic in some ways, or or you know try to replicate the natural rhythms and environment, and then they they will eat. And yeah, then yeah. Something opens up where you know you take the stress out, you take the all the the stuff that's in the way of perception out of the way, right. and that's really what what we have to do when we're and let them be what they are. Yeah, let them be what they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, audience, hold that thought in in your heads because that's where we're all, that's where we're coming back to. That's why we're sitting here in this metalworking studio in the middle of a forest in South Carolina, or North North Carolina, yeah, yeah, interesting. So so let's continue with the story then. So you're with this guy, and what did the the phrase precocial birds? Precocial, yeah. What does that mean? It means that they're, uh, so uh, a... a robin is an altricial bird. It will uh, stay in the nest for about two weeks while it grows. It comes out of the egg, you know, like a human baby, just like right. helpless it doesn't have, and it's ugly. helpless and ugly. It has no wings. It has shitting no, on you know, itself. It's got no fur squealing. or feathers. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it can't bo- regulate its body temperature. Its mother has to brood it. Right. Um, and then eventually it gets to where it fledges and that you know can take two to three weeks. And that's and when the feathers come out. Yeah. Right. And so they would never be on the ground, those kind of birds would never be on the ground unless they were they um, fell. close to fledging or uh-huh. had fallen. Yeah. So precocial, they just they just they're that's like a it's like a duckling or a chicken, like a uh, chick baby. They come out of the egg more or less they're f- intact yeah. and ready to go. Yeah. Right. Precocial. That's an interesting word. Precocious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh, okay. So uh, so people, if you find little birds that look like birds running around, leave them alone. I guess yeah, that's... Do. Well, there's another yeah. cool, interesting metaphor there, the the thinking that you're rescuing something exactly. that you're actually destroying. Mm, yep, That's it's true. That's probably the biggest tragedy there is. Yeah, yeah. Everybody wants to help in a world where everything is seemingly struggling. Yeah. It says something about the human spirit. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it also says something about the confusion. Well, here comes a car. This is nice. A car is driving through our podcast. This is a first. Yeah. Let's see. Who is that? Wow. It's a fancy car, too. It's an Audi convertible. <laughs> Who could this be? Hey, Lyle. Hey. Let's we're running podcasts. We're, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. All right. Let's do it again. Hey, hey, hey. What? What? Okay. Hey, hey, hey. What? What? All right. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I just have to wait. I have to start the this thing. I, I forget sometimes to turn these different things on. Okay. Uh, the video's on. The Zoom is on. The mic light is on. I think we're good. Okay. All right. We're okay. back to it. So we were just... Um, Visited by Lyle, who is sort of the er 
padre of this uh, project out here, which we're going to start talking about in a minute. And there was a very fortuitous interruption because I was able to convince him to do the podcast tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So you'll be hearing about Lyle, uh, or maybe you already have, depending on the, how these end up going up. I'm not sure. Who knows? Whatever. Uh, so. Where were we? T- where were we? We're in Florida. You're with um, the sad alcoholic the boyfriend yeah. <laughs> with a twice shitty car, age. twice your yeah. age. Yeah. Although you were with him for seven years, so he was he was only twice your age for a year or two. Let's be fair, right? Because when you were 25, he wasn't 50; he was 40. Right. See, see, it's yeah, math. Yeah, yeah. Can't true. argue with math. That. That's interesting. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was with a woman when I was. I met a woman who was 19 when I was 29, and uh, we were together for six years. I told you a little bit about her the other night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because the the whole age thing is really interesting. You know, uh, there was a 10 year difference there. Um, and at this point, if I am with a woman who's 30, there's a 25-year difference. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. a 30-year-old woman is more an adult than a 19-year-old woman is. And so, you know, assuming she's cool and she's smart and, you know, she's yeah. whatever. Even though the numerical difference is much bigger the sort of cognitive difference is actually smaller. And I would say, like, I was 17 and he was 34, but he was a raging alcoholic and he had a lot of work to do and he hadn't done it. And I was like, I hadn't done, I wasn't aware enough at all to even know there was work to be done. I was just trying to get through the day, but I I led him out of a world he didn't want to be in and to go take care of animals in Florida. And it it gave him some... um, some sense of his, you know, humanity, I think, in his life, uh, which he'd, he wouldn't have had if he'd have just kept grinding it out in Chicago trying to be something, you know? And so there's, yeah, it's, it's a kind of more about the story yeah. that we're living in than, you know, again, it kind of gets back to the school where we're in school when everybody's at the same age group and you right. can, like it's age, it's ageist, like, yeah from when you're in kindergarten you're yeah. aware of this developmental grading are you keeping up and da, 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 and so you ever hear the malcolm gladwell thing about i mean it, these these unintentional effects of things are just incredible it was about um somebody did a study of i think it was athletes i think it was athletes and also like standout intellectuals like nobel prize winners or or whatever you know uh, and what they found was that the people who were high achievers disproportionately were born in the months so they would have been the older kids in their class. Mm, I have heard of this, yeah. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. So you happen to have been born, I, I, I don't know how it lines up, but you know, that you're, because they're always in every class, they're going to be kids who are a few months older and kids who are a few months younger than the mean. So the kids who are clustered up toward the higher end where they're a little older, they do better in sports Mm because you're developing so quickly. Mm -hmm. They do, they answer questions. So 
only because of that random thing. They're not smarter, they're not more agile, whatever. They're just, a, you know, at that moment in their lives, they're surrounded by people a little less developed than them mm -hmm. as they go through school. So they develop a sense of self that, hey, I'm smart, I'm good at sports, I'm fast, I'm, and that feeds on, they get to dominate these other kids. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they end up dominating the world because they, they're yeah. raised to believe that that's who they are and that the face assumes the shape of the mask, you know? It's, yeah. in, it's incredible. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so why why and am I talking about that? What the fuck does that then, have to could, do? I mean, you and then you mentioned. I mean, it was uh, um, uh, the and so what is you know what is success? So you know, yeah, you learn to be. Oh, successful. I know, because you're you're talking about education and and yeah. you know how yeah, we're ageist. And the other weird thing about that educational system, I mean, there's so many, but one thing that always strikes me is how when you're an eight-year-old kid the people you admire most and whose opinions matter the most to you are like nine and ten year old kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't give a shit what that grown up says. They may as well be another species. Yeah, yeah, because they're the ones who are fucking grading you and making it so that you can't go to the bathroom when you want to and shit like that. Well, and also so. they're, they're incomprehensible. I remember when I was teaching yeah. English in Spain, I had a class of little <laughs> kids once who were like ten, I think. Yeah. And so as an exercise, I said to them, okay, I want everyone to guess how old I am, right? Write on a piece of paper how old I am. And at the time, I was probably 30 or 32 or something. And the guesses were hilarious. They ranged from like 15 to 90, mm -hmm. you know? They had no idea. Mm -hmm. their, their, their sense of how old someone is extends maybe a year or two right. away from them yeah. in either direction. Other than that, it's like, I don't know, you're a grown-up. What do I know? Right, right. That gets also, I think, into the 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 fact that we are in, we are indoctrinating or training our kids to a system, which which um, you know mangles their sense of time. So mm. there's something in there about like there's something for us as adults, I think, to learn about about time and how to be in the world by paying attention to what is not okay with children, to what's not right. working with children. Right. And what does that say? I mean, we can sit and wonder about it right now. What does that say about um, about who we are as inside or what our indigenous souls are? Um, what is most comfortable? Where does that start to sing? Um, and, and, and what ways are we are we asking children's brains to shut down in order for them to learn this kind of math or whatever? Right. Yeah, and to care about things that they don't organically care about. I think that's really damaging too, you know? I was talking to someone recently, I can't remember who it was, just in the last couple of days, and uh, he was saying that he was like 35 or something, and he was saying, yeah, I'm thinking of going to university now. And he's like, I have a lot of catching up to do. Mm. I was like, dude, no, no. you don't. No. You, this, that's the perfect time to go to university. You know what you're interested in. You yeah. know what bullshit sounds like. You know what authenticity sounds like. Mm. You know, that's... Hopefully. Yeah. yeah, hopefully. And this guy did. I, I remember mm -hmm. who it was. Yeah, it was at this 4th of July yeah. party I was at. And the guy was smart, and it's like, 
This is the perfect time for you to do that. It's just if you want to do it, yeah. don't go into fucking debt, you know, because no, no. there's so much information available for free these days. Yeah. If he there's knows no what he wants to. and he knows what he needs and he's got to have that piece of paper, then that's the time to do it. And yeah. it's not and it's not about um, catching up because that that just it's all the fucking it's all that, the that's language the time of, thing. Yeah. It's it's it's. It's what is success. It's success is a race to get somewhere, and you have to do catching up when you're yeah. in this race. And so you either, you know, you want what you want, and you need to, you need to have what you need to have in order to fill what's being fulfill what's being asked of you in this life, or you're in a race. And, and a race to a race. where? Right. That, that's the that's the funniest thing about the race is the finish line is death. Yeah, like, or retirement, and maybe you'll make it, and maybe you won't. And retire. What the fuck is retirement? Mm, it's retirement it's death. means it's death. <laughs> it is. I mean, for many people, it is literally death, right? Because yeah. you're so tied into that work identity that, yeah. like, when you don't have a staff and a secretary Absolutely. and people calling you boss, suddenly you just keel over and die, you know? Yeah. Um, but I mean, in any case, retirement. People ask me, like, you know, oh, you know, you don't have a retirement account or whatever. It's like, fuck no, man. Like, retire? Mm -hmm. Why would I want to retire? I mean, I want to do something I'm enjoying. And even if it, I have a friend, Kyle Tierman, who's on the podcast, he's a big wave surfer, mm -hmm. and uh, he just last week was in Santa Cruz at his grandfather's um, memorial service. His grandfather died four or five months ago, I think. And um, his grandfather lost all his money in the Bernie Madoff thing. Mm. And he was like, I think early 90s. And he got a job at the local supermarket as a bag boy. Mm. And he was famous in Santa Cruz as this like 90 year old guy who was bagging groceries. And he was totally cool with it. Yeah. He was like, hey, okay. And he's out in the community. Gotta get a job. Helping people. Exactly. People too, you know. Most 90 year old people are sitting in a fucking retirement home, you know, yeah. just punching the clock. Yeah. This guy's out there. He's like, yeah, yeah, oh, you lost all your money. I'm so sorry. Hey, I got, you know, mm -hmm. he's living. Mm -hmm. That's great. Sure. I hope I'm a bag boy when I'm 90. That's my, that's my ambition. <laughs> Not a bag man. Being a bag man is a whole different thing. I want to be a bag, 90-year-old bag boy. Boy, can you help me take these to your car? Yes, ma'am. I could see where that would be a really satisfying place to be, uh, to be to be there. That's like it's the community hub. Yeah. You get to see people and talk to them. And, and the manager would have to keep telling me to stop coming on to the ladies. Yeah, and he's there by, maybe, I guess, maybe he's not. Maybe he has, he has to be there, but... Sounds like if he's happy, he's there by choice. And well, my sense was that he was there by choice, and I, I don't know Kyle's whole the whole family dynamic, but mm, you know they're really good people, and there's money in the family. So like, hey, if Grandpa didn't want to be bagging, yeah. nobody was going to force him to go bag yeah. groceries. You know, they would have taken care of him. I'm sure they did, but I just I my point is having a sense of engagement, and you know. And I don't want to minimize how horrible some jobs are, um, but I mean, I pumped gas for three or four years mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. I met some cool people. I had, you know, I breathed a lot of fumes. I guess mm. that's probably the downside of it. <laughs> but but I had some some good times, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we're in Florida. You're. 
you know, it occurs to me, maybe this is a little obvious or, you know, whatever, but your, the way you describe your relationship with your boyfriend at the time is also sounded a little bit like the birds. You're, you're a very nurturing person is the vibe that I'm getting. You're very much about helping people out of tough spots. Yeah, that, yeah. And, and animals, yeah, helping yeah. creatures out of, out of tough spots into where yeah. they need to be. Well, that's where you're most engaged, right? So I think um, I never have had a, I've never had a job that was just a, a, a daily grind. I've never done anything that I, I didn't really want to be doing. And, it's, and everywhere I've been in my work has been where I felt uh, I was, I needed, I need to make myself mandatory to something, you know? Not mm. just to a paycheck or creating, you know, paying paying a bill or whatever. It's I've I've always felt I needed to be mandatory, um, and I didn't I couldn't call it I wouldn't all through my life I wouldn't call it that. But now I look back and I and I think realize yeah I want to rise to a request that I I feel is being is being asked of me, and um, so I don't know that I was trying to save him or anything like that. Certainly not. I mean I was just I was just going where the wind was blowing me and trying to to keep my head above water but I was I was doing it in a way that was really satisfying and um, and I think it it allowed us to both be to feel more free yeah how did that end oh he was um, I moved back to Chicago and he was to come later um, I went back to school. I got a job working as a veterinary technician at a avian vet clinic, and I was going to school and working and living with my parents. And then he moved back, and he just didn't. He was just downward spiraling, and I was growing, and mm. I couldn't. Um, I just. I felt like the only thing that I could do for him at that point was to leave him because to stay, and be in that life with him while he drank himself to death every day was there was nothing I could do to make it stop and if I sat there with him it was like I was condoning the, the continuance of it and I I just felt like well this is this is the last thing I can do is is let him know that this is not okay and I can't be I can't be here while this is happening and I was hoping that it would that it would turn him around in some way but he moved back down to Florida and I started borrowing money from people and became kind of carless and staying in someone's bedroom, spare room, couch, whatever. And last I heard, he ended up with some kind of cancer and died probably 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you were working the bird thing led you to go back to school and you I mean last night we were with George yeah yeah African George is from parrot. way back then yeah really George is an African gray parrot yeah that, what? that um I posted a photo of you and George on Instagram by the way did you I hope you don't mind no I'll I'll uh I'll put that photo if I remember I'll put that photo on my web page when okay. we do this it's yeah. a great shot no yeah so that so George is another like uh he was another um a oh, bad scene, you know. He was living in the corner of, of a house that was my sister's best friend's 
house. It was their parents' bird, and there were all these kids running around, and nobody was paying attention to him, and he was stuck in a corner in a dark in a cage in the darkest room in the house, so he wouldn't make a noise, you know. Um, curtains were pulled so that, because if a bird is amongst its kind, it will squawk and make a lot of noise and stuff, and they didn't want to hear that. So he was in the corner in the darkest room of the house in a cage that was way too small for him, and um, it was full of mold, and mm. it was like, mm. you know, the water was filthy with like, it just looked like soup. It was thick mm. with, you know, and he had nothing to eat but black oil sunflower seeds from the hardware store, and oh, he was geez. just, his beak was all overgrown. He was a mess, and I... Um, I wanted, we, my sister and I wanted to, to get him out of there, but they wouldn't, they refused to give him to us. They wouldn't even sell him to us. What? So, I don't know. What's up with that? I don't know. Like, obviously you don't want the bird. You're not taking care of know. it. I don't know. It's an admission that you're fucked Something. up. Something. It's an admission that you're not up to this and you're doing it wrong. It's just a possession. They don't want to, it's like, you know, I don't know, I've got stuff stuffed under my bed that I don't, you know, really know. I don't want to throw the thing out, but I don't really need it anymore, but I'm going to keep it anyway. And like, can I have that thing? No, I want that. Like, no, you can't have that, you know, because it's mine. <laughs> I think that's it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, but it's a hassle to take care of a bird, you know, yeah. like it's messy yeah. and it's and it's a hassle. I wouldn't yeah. recommend anybody get a parrot. Right. You know, don't do it. They're like a two-year-old that never grows up, and there's a, there's a lot of work. <laughs> and even louder. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, eventually, uh, my sister and I lived in Tennessee. Um, we're skipping a little, but we, we moved to Tennessee. So you and your sister did sort of rekindle your relationship after that six yeah, years yeah, of yeah. silence. Yeah, when I went back to Chicago to um, go back to school, I joined her in some of her classes. We have a lot of similar interests. and. Um, yeah. She's an archaeologist right now in the Tongass National Forest in Alaska. Oh, wow. Her, her degree was in uh, anthropology, and she ended up going up there to volunteer and just got a job and stayed and loves it. And Where is Tongass? Is that southeast? Yeah, it's in the Panhandle. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've been there a lot of times. It sounded familiar. So yeah. she in like Sitka or? She's in Petersburg. Petersburg, no shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my God. Well, people who listen to this podcast have heard me. There was a Toma uh, talking out my ass where I met this guy who had been with the Mansons and there's this whole crazy salmon story. Mm. That all happened in Petersburg. Mm. I was there for probably 10 days. Oh yeah, when was this? This was the spring of 1983. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the bald eagles were breeding. and Yeah, it's it beautiful was there. Amazing. There's like yeah. sea, li sea lions and... Um, Rains like ravens fucking and, Oh, it's hell. all the time Constant raining. Constant rain. It is. I don't know how anybody lives up there, honestly. Yeah. They call the, the, the little hole in the clouds a sucker hole. Because <laughs> you think you you're think like the sun's, the sun's coming. coming, and it's like fucking <laughs> sucker. sucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, Petersburg. I know it well. Love, had some great times in Petersburg. Anyway, so wow, she's up there. She sounds fascinating. Yeah. And what, what's she doing? What's an archaeologist doing there? Um, they're they're so the Tongass. I, this, if I remember incorrectly, the Tongass is a place where most people are are going to visit so there's not a lot of cutting anymore but sometimes there is cutting and so they ha in order to um, not disturb culturally significant 
um, sites for native the native peoples oh, there. Okay. They have to go in and survey where like shell middens are and where fish traps are and where so they so they don't destroy any culturally significant sites. Right. That's what she does, and right. she works with um, the native peoples there. Um, in I don't know exactly how, but that's cool. She goes to like potlucks with them, and she's just like relationship between the federal government and the native peoples right. around the forest. And, right. Yeah. Hook me up with your sister. Let's get her on the podcast, too. She sounds great. So, okay, you're living with your sister in Tennessee, and... Well, we moved, we moved, so, um, so I, I was back at, I was back in Chicago with my sister, living with my parents, and we, um, it was a summer class coming up, and, um, it was a field biology class, and it was going to happen in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. And so we signed up for the class. We went down there. We enjoyed it. I'd never been, I'd, I'd, I'd always, like, I went from Chicago to Florida, which right. is essentially just, uh, you know, you've got strip malls up here, and down there you've got a strip mall in strip between malls. ocean and Swamp. Everglades. Yeah. So uh, there wasn't much difference. Um, so we, we ended up in the Smokies, and I was amongst, you know, green mountains and beautiful, the smell of the place and, like, the rivers, and, and it was just magical. And so we were listening to one of the guest speakers. It was all about conservation biology and, and field work. And so one of the guest speakers was um, a biologist from the Red Wolf Recovery Program. And... Uh, so they, he said, this is John, my, he's a dear friend of mine now, John Weller, he, he said uh, that they were looking for intern, an, an, an intern. So I went back to Chicago and I applied for two different jobs. One was a, a zookeeper somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and the other was um, a Red Wolf recovery intern in the Smokies. And my sister also applied for the Red Wolf recovery internship position. And um, the lead biologist on the program um, agreed that he would hire the both of us together. To was, was that your condition or did he just no, notice no. that you both had applied? He noticed that we both applied and that we were siblings and that you know we wanted to that we could come together so it was kind of like a two-for-one. And he, this know. wasn't Doug Ward? Was that his name? Doug no. Ward? The, Who's Doug Ward? The, the guy you, who spoke. Was no, that name? was John Weller. John Weller. Yeah, you are bad with names. <laughs> I just said that a couple minutes ago. <laughs> hey, I got the first letter of his last name right. That's that's all. I got the W. I, you I remember W W. Yeah. John Weller. John yeah. Weller. Okay, um, but but this wasn't with him. This was with Chris. Yeah. So Chris um, was the higher was the was the lead recovery biologist on that. He was the co recovery coordinator on that project, and this was in 1995, and. Um, so he hired us, and uh, we moved down. We moved down there and moved into the bunkhouse and began um, being the the best Red Wolf recovery interns they'd ever seen. Yeah, that's what we heard, and we were able to. And it's, it's another proud moment for me, I think, because we we poured ourselves into that work. You know, like we would get up every day and get in our in the government truck it was a blue bronco and it had this big antenna that would um that you could crank out this the, the ceiling of the truck and a huge uh antenna would 
would lift off the roof and then you'd put your headphones on and you'd turn the thing and listen for the signals of the of the radio collared wolves and um, it was very challenging to catch a signal from or to, f to find yeah to first of all know where the signal was coming from because in the mountains the signals bounce around mm. it's not like like uh, radio tracking on the coast where mm. you just you go you you turn the thing in where the strongest signal is coming from that's, that's where the animal right, is right. and so then you in order to find out where the animal was you take you'd go get that get that directionality right there and then you drive down the road a ways and get another one and then where they intersect that's where the animal is but in uh, in the mountains it's hard because the signals are bouncing around everywhere and so um, so we just took it serious and we'd be gone every day we'd have a great time together it was a really close bonding time for my sister and I we would mm. we were we just had our ways and our things that we did together and we'd sing sing out sing in the truck together and sing ridiculous old like ballads from the 70s like it just was great and country music and you it was such a you great you remember time like what, what what was your favorite thing to sing brandy probably oh brandy you're a fine uh -huh. girl yeah you're a fine girl yeah wait and what a good the, the, wife the, you would be yeah. but my life my love, my my love, love of my lady, lady is, is the sea he was from spain yeah he brought her the finest silver from yes, the north of spain yes, on a did. locket that bore her name yeah of a man that brandy loved yeah we would just belt out those old ballads <laughs> in the song in the who was that band i i've just listened to that song recently yeah i love that too it, it was this band it was like i think it was a one-hit wonder i think that was like was their it? hit yeah yeah it wasn't you know it wasn't like uh who is the Canadian guy? If you could read my love, if you could read my mind, girl, what oh, tell yeah. my thoughts would tell. I don't know. I don't know. I know the songs. But the, I don't know the names of the yeah, names. but he's got a bunch of those like '70s ballads. Mm -hmm. um, but this, yeah, Brandy was, I think, a one-hit wonder. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so you're driving around, you're singing, bothering all the animals with your fucking '70s ballads. Yeah, and then we'd we'd go out during the day and we'd we'd find animals that, you know, we we found a wolf that was missing. And what happens when an animal is missing, you think it's dead, right? So you go out and you listen for the mortality signal, which is a signal that beeps twice as fast as... Oh, the, the caller knows when the animal dies. Yeah, the animal doesn't move for six hours, it goes oh. into mortality mode. So it's, oh. like, it's like a twice as fast beeping. And um, so we were out there looking for this animal and we were, we were going, we spent all day, like, and we heard the mortality signal so far away so far away but um and then we we said we heard the signal I remember calling on the radio back to chris and like and baron the other biologist and saying we heard the mortality signal and it's somewhere around here we don't know exactly where because it's really hard to tell and and so they came out and um and with their expertise they managed to find this animal like we heard the signal not it wasn't far away it was probably a quarter mile and um and they found the animal deep down like underneath a, a sheer cliff face, like where this ravine, this deep, deep ravine went um, underneath the road and uh, they found the animal there dead and she had starved to death. She had um, eaten so many persimmons that she had blocked her gut and just um, starved to death from, from a blockage. But like that was the point that Baron gave us, like Baron was a hard nut to crack and he gave us, uh, he was like, man, I'm gonna give it to you. 
you guys are probably the best interns we've ever had so so we decided to stick around and we were just having the time of our lives and we were feeling really good about what, the work we were doing and my sister decided to stay at UT and study anthropology and I um, went to work for the Park Service for a couple of seasons and and uh, I went I stayed on the Wolf Project as an intern at the same time and then and then I decided that um, I wanted to go work in, uh, so the southeast region of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a number of different endangered species projects going on that they manage, and one was in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican, the Puerto P Puerto Rican Parrot Recovery Program. So, um, so I got to go down there and live in like Chupacabra country, top of the rainforest at um, El Yunque for um, what, what's about six chupacabra? months. Chupacabra? What is that? The chupacabra is the is the like oh chupacabra. Oh yeah. right, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The goat sucker. The, the chupacabra. The yeah. Blood sucker. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I thought that was in Mexico. Well, I think it's all over, so oh. like sort of it's Latin like, America. It's like the Spanish Yeti or something. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, so you're in in rainforest uh, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Oh, what was that like? Oh, it was it was it was. It was challenging for me because I, I was, I was really wanting to be back in uh, Tennessee, and I wanted to continue that work, and I wanted to be still in that world of. Uh, but it, it, but it, it just uh, it was difficult. It was there were challenges, and I and I just felt like I needed to um, to get away for a bit. And um, had you and Chris gotten together at this point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had gotten together and we were just running, we were having some troubles and um, so I just felt like I needed to remove myself for a while and um, and like let him have his freedom and let him have his ability to make choices and you know, and I, so I was, I was loving, like I, I spent every, I would get up at six in the morning, feed the parrots, take care of the aviary birds, you know, do everything I needed to do until about noon. And then I had a, I had a government truck that I could, I, they gave me a stipend and like a cell phone and, a, and uh, this government truck that I could go anywhere on the island with. So I would go to, over to the, to the Navy base and um, there was this awesome r little reef off the, um, off the coast there that I could swim to. And, at, and this was pre 9/11, so all I had I had government plates on a on a white Bronco, and I they just like waved me in. So I'd go in there and um, and just spend my afternoons uh, snorkeling on this magical island reef. Um, it was fun. I was the only female on the beach, really, there hey, in a the navy base. Yeah. Wow! I had a, quite I got quite a few dates out of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a mermaid Saw or something the, um, to those guys. Saw the nuclear warheads and like uh, um, dated an English sailor. It was uh, an English, uh, was, uh, his name was Perry Tugby. And he was, he was on the, 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 the sub, this submarine that ran mm -hmm. aground on the reef and they had to fix it. And I, I spent like... On your reef? On, on eight, no, it oh. was somewhere else and they had to fix the sub. And so, like, I went, this was so fun. Like, these, these English sailors were freaking awesome. And they were, I mean, it was just, can you imagine English sailor humor in a mess hall of a sub? Mm. And I'm the only woman. Oh, boy. Like, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. It was epic. That's kind of. great. It was great. Yeah. And then, uh, 
sat in an F-16. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at it from Chris's perspective too, right? Like you, you, you guys are together, you're having issues, whatever. You're like, yeah, I'm going to give you your space. I'm going to go to Puerto Rico. And then he's like getting letters like, yeah, I've been hanging out on this Navy base. And here's a picture of me in an F-16. Yeah, but I really wanted to be with him more than anything. But, you know, I, I also like, well, I love honesty. So yeah. I wasn't trying to hide anything. And, right. You know, and I was, I was, I was really kind of playing hardball because I wanted him so bad. So I would like, so I'm sending him boxes with Puerto Rican parrot T-shirts and and cigars from Cuba and and Puerto Rican rum and pictures of me on the beach and like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're pushing all the buttons. Yeah, yeah. One of those things is gonna work. I, yeah. I'm guessing it's the pictures of you on the beach, probably. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. Unless so, unless he's really into cigars. He still has, I still have the, the little, it's a Romeo and Juliet uh, cigar uh, right. case. I still have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I moved back to Tennessee and moved in with him and, uh, and we lived in a beautiful place outside of the park. Previously, we had been living in Cades Cove behind the ranger station, which is a beautiful part of the national park. Um, it's like a five mile long by one mile wide bowl of pasture mm. and kind of uh, open um, meadow. And this is the Great Smoky Mountains yeah. National Park? I've yeah. never been there. It's, about, it's up at about 2,300 feet is about where this this open pasture kind of meadow is uh -huh. in the middle of the smoke, in, in the middle of the mountains. So right. you're just, you're just, everywhere you look, it's just in a bowl. And uh, it was gorgeous and magical and um, just couldn't wait to get back there. Um, I, I had, I, like this kind of sums up my experience in the Smokies. Once I was, I was out, I was, my sister and I were given the opportunity to take care of the ranger horses and the horse, ranger horse program was being phased out but they still had the horses and they needed someone to take care of them so we offered and of course I loved horses and I wanted to ride and so I would um, hop on my favorite horse Cherokee um, whenever just bareback he was a really sweet Tennessee walker and mm -hmm. um, you know you could just get on him bareback and hold on to his mane and just yeah. get into that running walk and it was beautiful out mm -hmm. in this bowl of beautiful pasture in the middle of the Smokies and and it was in a place where really no other people went because most yeah. everybody was on the road pointing yeah. at things out the car window and so um, this beautiful magical place is my backyard and this horse is amazing and I'm 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 just at sunset on Cherokee just kind of like laying on her back and mm. you know just taking it all in and I'm looking over and I'm look, looking around and here goes a, comes a wolf just walking by doesn't see me because I'm on Cherokee on horse, right? and Cherokee and the wolves are around each other all the time so they're not upset about each other and so uh, and the wolf doesn't see me and so I'm just it's Is literally it a, a about 25 wolf? feet away it's a red wolf yeah and it has a radio collar and I'm probably you know it's one of the animals that I'm tracking every yeah. day probably and uh, and it's sunset and around sunset every day the wolves will howl so there's a captive pen that's um, full of that's got animals in it that are going to be released or they're causing problems somewhere in a picnic area and they can't be out wild anymore and they need to be in a pen and so there's penned animals in Cades Cove 
and in a couple of other places in the park. And then there's this wild population, which is mostly centered around Cades Cove. And um, so the, the wolves around sunset every day would howl. So this wolf just sits, sits her butt down and starts howling right in front of me at sunset. And I'm on my favorite horse, and it's like I just, I mean, my heart still beats fast thinking about it. Yeah. It's such beauty. And, uh, and I just watched her howl and listen to the wolves in the pen howl back to her and watched that for, I don't know, maybe a minute. And then she just got up and walked in the direction of the wolves that were in the pen. And so we also had to feed the pen and penned animals. That was part of our job as interns. And so you could see outside of the pen that there were tracks. So the wild ones were coming to the captives to, to say hello and sniff noses and whatever. So she was probably on her way over there to say hey mm. to them. Wow, what a moment. Yeah, so that's, that's the mythical origins of, of Chris and my relationship too. Like that's, I get to go back to the, the bunkhouse office and tell that story and, and tell it you know, at a campfire while we're d drinking beers and eating a pizza we made together. And it's not just me and him, it's me and him and, and John Weller and my sister and, you know, the bear, the UT bear and the bear researcher interns. And like, it's a whole community there of, um, of people who are working in, in wildlife and conservation. So, um, when we ended up leaving the park to move to like we, things started, started to disintegrate around the project and it had to be closed, it wasn't working. And so then we moved to the, um, to the coast. And... Um, it wasn't working because of funding issues? No, the fund, it wasn't, wasn't working, working because the, um, so they, the original release for the Wolf Project was, um, was this kind of peninsula of Dare County in Dare County Pen Peninsula on the coast of North Carolina. And, um, and in that area, it's, um, it's big ag fields, it's warehouser blocks, it's, it's, it's Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge, which is really a lot of forest and swamp. So it's like, it's big, wide open, full of deer easy prey um, for these animals. Um, they're, they're not like a gray wolf. They don't, um, they're more like a, they're like a coyote in their, in their hunting manner. They're, they don't take down big game. They are more opportunistic. They'll, like that one wolf I talked about a minute ago that, that gorged herself on persimmons. Like they'll eat fruit, they'll eat insects, they'll eat eggs, they'll eat, you know, anything they can scrounge around. And that stuff is typically found in, um, in pastured, areas and fields and meadows and and uh, and the edges of woods hmm. and so they put the the red the second red wolf project because they didn't want to have only one they wanted to have another and they thought the best place to be would be in the largest tract of federal land in the southeast which is um, the the Great Smoky Mountains National Park surrounded by all of the um, Forest Service land that it ends up being about a million square acres mm. So they're like let's do it there, but it's not actually an ideal environment for the no, animal. Yeah. No, it, it was Especially it, if they're not letting fires burn right because the fires would create the meadows naturally. Sure. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it's a naturally forested area. I think anyways um, historically and so 
Um, so what was happening where the wolves were always leaving the park because uh, they don't know what boundaries are. They don't right. know. They don't know our boundaries. So they would go food. to the park and they would leave the park and they would go to um, populated areas where where the kind of people that surrounded the park were like small farm homesteaders. And so um, they didn't like the wolves around. They w these animals were, um, of course, they're not going to not eat a chicken if it's there. Sure. You know. And so if you don't have proper fencing um, yeah. and so on, then they're going to make some trouble. And so they were being poisoned purposefully with, um, you know, antifreeze and other like warfarin and um, like rat poison and um, and being hit by cars on purpose and stuff like that. Yeah. So they and um, shot I'm sure. and shot absolutely yeah and that's still going on in the east right now in the east of North Carolina. But yeah, the wolf has a uh, has uh, inherited the European trauma as well as. <laughs> As well as humans have, because uh, yeah. they've they've uh, they carry the story of the old world of um, you know expanding agriculture and fences yeah. and rabies and all that stuff. Right. So yeah, it's funny the, the the sort of demonization of wolves. You're right; it yeah. goes way back. Yeah. And I, I was reading something about this recently. It might have even been the Barry Lopez book. Mm -hmm. You know about wolves. Mm -hmm. I forget what's of called. wolves and men. Of probably. wolves and men. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's something in there about where he actually looks at like how many verified cases of wolves killing people there are, oh, yeah. and they're yeah. like seven in like 300 years or something. It's like yeah, and they were they were most likely rabid. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And you're more likely to be killed by your neighbor's dog than by a wolf. It's, Absolutely. But, but still, we have this, and also there, there's you know getting back to my sort of central rant about Hobbes. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, man was a wolf to man. Mm. You know, that was one of his lines. You know, he said it in Latin. Uh, mm. But it's funny because wolves are actually really cool and they're cool to each other and they're yeah. very social and very, they'll raise, you know, the the young of another wolf and there's all this sort of, I mean, yeah. you know, there's, there, there's nastiness, of course, there's a capacity for it. But um, yeah, this whole idea of man was a wolf to man is... Yeah. wrong on both counts so so the project is shutting down in the mountains and you guys move this is when you move to the swamp yeah we moved to the swamp we moved back to the swamp to the original place where um where chris had um began as oh an he intern. started on he the started there as an intern right and then he um he got a technician job and then they offered him to be the coordinator on the field project in the smokies didn't work um moved back to continue working on the wolf project in the east of North Carolina and so you know I I had my everything you know I had my my man that I loved and that like I um, like I he was my best friend we needed I needed to be with him and 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 there we were together and we were gonna go off into the sunset right and uh, and start a life together and um, and uh, but there I, there I am in the in the flats again, and I'm not in the mountains. And Were you married like, at this time? We got married. We got married in 2000. We moved there in 1999. Oh. So um, um, and and I didn't have that work. Like my work was no longer with that project, and mm. 
and I didn't know what the hell was doing there, you know? Like, I was right. there to support him and his work, and I still supported the Wolf Project, and, um, and I wanted to be there with him. I would have gone anywhere with him, you know? Um, but, but I just, I, just this feeling of, like, something's not right. Like, I have, I have a roof over my head. I have a beautiful house. I have a beautiful husband. I'm, I'm married now. I've got, you know, I, I don't know if I was pregnant yet, but, like, at some point I, you know, had healthy babies. And I'm like, why is this not enough? What is going on here, you know? Like, maybe, maybe I need to, um, maybe I need to, uh, I converted to Judaism in 2009 because I thought, I, I was attracted, I, I can tell you why in retrospect, I can look back at the reason, like, oh, I wanted, you know, ancient ritual and tribe and songs and all that. But, so anyway, I did all this, like, was I Chris needed Jewish? to get, no, I needed to get, you know, I needed to get, like, figure out Christianity, okay, that's not working, like, okay, that's, I, I can set that aside. Right. Oh, but, so these people, these people, they've got it. Okay, so let's go down there and, like, okay, like, that's, yeah, that's cool, and this is a great book, and oh man, this is an amazing philosophy, and wow, and okay, but now uh, that's not really either. That's not really it either. Right. Okay, so that was sort uh, of a thing for a while, right? Like, was Madonna? There's some some. This was after that, but yeah, she was. Yeah, the the whole Kabbalistic thing. Yeah. It was more. I wasn't into that Kabbalistic stuff. I just really wanted to get around people who were thinking big, who were thinking about things right. that mattered and had, you know, had a culture. And right. Jews have a, a culture. They, they have an mm. amazing, you know, uh, they've got all these blessings and stories yeah. and, 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 comedy. and songs and chants and food and like it's shitty it's food great. though. Let's be honest. <laughs> Come on. Gefilte fish? Give me a fucking break. Mm, I kind of like that. Matzo yeah. balls. Yeah, I even Fuck studied with, with like a Lubavitcher like rabbi. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, he was really mystical and amazing. And, wow. Um, but, you know, uh, so anyway, I experimented. I went down all of these, like, tangents of, of uh, figuring out what the right. hell, you know? And, and, and then I realized, well, when, when was it, when was it really humming along? Like, when did I really feel in the zone, you know? And I kept thinking, I need to move back to the mountains. I need to move back to the mountains because hmm. the mountains, because it's green. And also, it's like, like talk like, a little bit about where you're living. You, you've told me. The oh last yeah, we're living days in the swamp. We're living in like. like talk, talk about your neighbors. Oh. <laughs> if you, yeah. I mean, so you told me them, some funny shit about your. So neighbors. one of them was in. He was in. Uh, yeah. So we have this. We have this like six-acre oasis of which you know it's a homestead, but on on every side is is. Uh, I mean, these people helped us out some, and they were. It wasn't like we couldn't get along with. I mean, really, I can get along with anybody now, honestly. Um, but yeah, one neighbor was. He was gone for seven years. We didn't have to deal with him because he was in prison because he was uh, not supposed to be handling firearms, and he was a bear poacher, and he shot his brother-in-law in the back, and he wasn't supposed to handle firearms, but he did, and so the so the state game agency got him and threw him in jail because, you know, he's, he's a bad guy. He's like an outlaw. He's poaching he's bears. Poaching and bears and sending the, sending the gallbladders, gallbladders to, China. to China. That's, yeah. that's yeah, that was something in his history. So For dumbass Chinese people. Yeah, Come and on. then, uh, yeah, and then we had um, <laughs> another neighbor who had a cat who was black that they called nigger and would call out the 
the house not, at night. Not N-word? No. N-word! No. N-word! Straight up, yeah. <laughs> and my kids would be out there, you know, playing, and they'd want their cat to come in, and they'd be calling that out the door. Yeah. And Were these, was this the lesbian couple? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm assuming they're lesbian. I'm sure they don't listen to your podcast. <laughs> I don't think they do. <laughs> I, I think the lesbian <laughs> racist, uh, you know, population is not tuned into this podcast. Yeah, yet. and then the other. But if one they were, was... there's nothing wrong with the lesbian part. But we no. can lose the racist part, ladies. Right, right. Come right. on now, you want to be accepted. Well, they you were. Be you know, it was funny because they're like they're they're lesbians. One is like really really hardcore kind of dyke, and the other is like a soccer mom kind of, and they're they're trying to form this you know yeah. this life together. And who's discriminated? That's a discriminated against group. Sure. They have to be in the closet. Yeah. But yet they're they're finding no alliance with um, with the black people in the area because it's just it's just weird. It's just weird this discrimination thing. And and, who and it, you know it works both ways. I mean, black uh, American culture is very homophobic generally. Mm. You know, which is know weird. That, yeah. yeah I, I was talking. I, I, some of my best friend, friends are black, actually. <laughs> So thanks for mentioning that. Um, but yeah, I was speaking with them. There was this this thing in California a few years ago. Uh, uh, forget what it's called. Uh, not an amendment, but a referendum. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to make uh, gay marriage you know legal and you know, no questions asked kind of thing. And like some of the coolest black people I know were like, yeah, no, I'm not going to vote for that. Like, what, how can you not vote for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are you know. talking about? I just think it's wrong. Like, yeah, dude. Come yeah. on. Anyway, so so you're 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 in the swamp. You're having kids. You're married to your dream guy. Yeah. You're surrounded by crazed redneck characters, and you're saying, mm, "This isn't really working as well as I no, feel it wasn't like it that, should." It wasn't that it wasn't working. Like everything was was. It was just that I just felt there was something down. Something I kept having to like see what that missing like what that missing thing there's got to be a there's something inside of here something this situation that's not quite right like i need to keep on going i need to go down this rabbit hole and that rabbit hole and mm. you know you know and then always the call to the mountains like that's where it was great mm. in the mountains and so we need to get back to the mountains like you've got to get us out of here you've got to get another job you've got to get some training you've got to you know we can't stay here we need to get back to the mountains because that's where it was sweet um but over time, I began to realize that it really wasn't the mountains. It was the lived, daily, working together, um, building, working together in shared vision mm. with each other. Like every, like not just not just Chris and I, but this whole crew of people who lived behind the ranger station. We had, right. you know, there were there were people there, just everybody just loved the park and right. they were there for the park and they were there for the wildlife and they yeah. were there for the plants and they yeah. were there for, so we were all just of shared mind and shared heart and shared mission. Right. And, um, and we would, we would and, and our days were never the same. We always were doing a little something a little bit different and collaborating and coming back and reporting to each other. And it wasn't like we just had like this drudgery that we had to re make, like go back, re make our reports on the computer. Like it was just, it was, it was what happened today? What did you find out today? You know, mm. like, um, and uh and then we were we were always making dinners together. We were right. always cooking together, and we were making fires together, right. and telling stories together. And and uh, yeah. and I just realized over time that that was what it like. Oh, that's where I 
first encountered a sense of home that I confused with a place yeah. and one man. I hear you. Which he was home to me, but he wasn't. Over time, it began to be, well, I'm with you, but somehow this isn't home. Right. And yeah. And and I and I got reflective enough and wondering enough and and learned it enough that I could I could sort out that we needed a village. We needed our community. people. We needed yeah. community. We needed shared work. We needed we needed that and not only did we need that but our children needed that because we were stressed out and we were right. trying to like he was trying to work and he was trying to keep us happy because we shouldn't have been there and the swamp sucked and we were surrounded by racist rednecks and like uh it, we were just not we weren't we weren't supposed to be there uh i mean i can't say that now as i look at things i mean we were supposed to be there for all these reasons but at the time i was just fighting it um and 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 like waking up every morning going why am i still here what am i supposed to be doing here what is being asked of me um surely it can't just be to be making lemonade out of lemons all the time because you know i was starting to you know, convince myself that I really love the lemonade, but I started, I just started to not be able to stomach it anymore. And I was telling him like, we've really got to, we've really got to get out of here. I can't, I can't, ta I can't taste this anymore. It's making me sick, you know? Like, Did you oh. have all three kids there? Yeah. And they really so had a beautiful, yeah. They I had mean, a, pregnancy and yeah. delivery oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. breastfeeding and then pregnancy and you're, you're yeah. on a... Yeah. But yeah, so that that dramatic. was that and he and it was all yeah, it was a great I mean it wasn't it wasn't a great place to do it, but it was it was because um when you're alone and you're birthing babies and starting family and you have no community and you're it's just you and the nuclear family with your husband and and the days are so the the house is so quiet and and there's there's nobody there it's just it's like just the sound of the wind going by the house you know it's just it was a it was a, a heartbreaking empty wind yeah. that i would that i could sense just outside the door you know yeah. and so i just got the sense at that time that you know these children needed more than me yeah and i needed more than this and yeah. the, I should have been integrated into a uh, I started I just felt like as a mother whoa there this is not right there there ought to be you know a circle of women here with children of all ages and I, I started like sat there in my quiet times just with this baby you know when the TV wasn't on because <laughs> I would leave the TV on to breastfeed like okay it's time to breastfeed the baby for six months Let's turn on the satellite, you know. Right. Um, Watch bombs going off and people suffering all over the world. Yeah, but I began to yeah. have this. I began to form a picture in my mind of of what was absent, of mm. the absence of this, of this village of women. And mm. that's interesting. I it's began to fantasize about this missing village. Huh. And um, and in that way, I was able to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's this situation that right. I'm in. And, and so taking it out of myself and like 
why can't you be happy and you know what's wrong with you you know you've got everything you know, anybody could want and you're healthy and everybody's happy and healthy and what's the matter with you like what's the matter with you why are you not happy I started to realize that it was this structure that I was in that um, that was really just leaving me um, in an absolute poverty of um, uh, human poverty so um, uh, in, in that, those moments I began to um, to question everything um, and to, you, I used my time in the swamp essentially to go down I, I had no, nothing else to do so I was like reading all I could about um, you know I had to put my it was time to put my five year old on the bus I was like, that's a fucked up thing to do. Why does that? Why does that seem fucked up to me? All right, let's start like down the rabbit hole of compulsory education system, and and okay, we're not homeschool. We're not gonna send our kids to public school ever, and uh, not anything that I ever planned on. But I hmm. spent the time to learn the problems and to learn the the structure and to understand its consequence and I just didn't want my kids to have anything to do with it. Was he cool with this? Yeah. Chris? Yeah, he was uh, yeah, because we would talk about all these things, you know. Right. He would come he had it was great really because he had this he was like he was on that project for before he died he was on that project for almost thirty years. So he was one of the lead he was like probably well, was one of the lead biologists on the project and he uh, he was very devoted to his work. He was very devoted to unendangering those wolves. And he took it, it was very mandatory to him to show up and, and be, um, be in that work every day. And so there wasn't anybody that was looking over his shoulder making sure that he did his job. You know, he was, he was just on it all the time and, his, and, his, and because it was a biological kind of work, kind of job, um, it, it would change with the seasons according to what the wolves were doing and according to the weather and everything. So there were times when he had to really, really work hard and then there were times when he would use his, um, his uh, pay, like he worked a lot then, so now he can mm. take time off, whatever yeah, that is, I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, and so he, he, had a, he had a lot of freedom and so that was another reason why, you know, I, I kind of didn't really put the hammer down on, on getting gone from there because um, he was able to be with us so much. He would come home with wolves in the back of his truck. He would come home with <laughs> bear cubs and really? dead things and swans. And, you know, he would, they were working up the wolves in the, in our shed, you know, they would come back with three wolves in the back of his truck and they would working, they were, before they had a building, before they had a red wolf processing building, right. they would do it and he would do their work in our little tiny Working workshop. Working up, meaning like taking Meaning like taking blood, blood and measurements and, right. and um, yeah, and putting uh, radio collars on, um, right. all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, my kids were, like, my kids climbed into wolf dens to get puppies out and... Um, That's amazing. Like, they had, yeah. it wasn't like cool it was some kind of hell, yeah. you know. But, it but was, for you, but for you, I mean, I can see the kids, they've got the, the nature and each other and Chris had the meaning of his work and you know which was so central to his existence and then but you're kind of there like I got no friends here I got yeah. nobody to hang out with it's just there's no one even my age that I can yeah. relate to he's gone all day yeah. and 
yeah, yeah that was a that I was a subject that, that we yeah. would you know it was something that came up all the time you know whenever we would have troubles and i yeah. would push for going and right. it was it was just uh yeah that's it hard it gives me a knot in my stomach right now just even thinking about it yeah it makes me feel tense and uncomfortable just yeah. even thinking about it so well it's from from bad to worse then because like now we're going to talk about how you got out of there yeah yeah
So take, I started. You um, take a break? Or no, no, no. I'm yeah. fine. No, yeah. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to orient, orient myself to where we were before, and I can't really remember exactly where we left off. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there was the sense of community. There's like you're you're isolated. Um, oh yeah, I couldn't stand. Uh, I couldn't stand anymore to drink the lemonade. The, oh that right. We were making. You were starting to. Yeah, and I was really beginning yourself to. You liked it. Yeah. I was beginning to be very concerned. For our for our future, I was beginning to feel that um, I wasn't. We were never going to get out of there. You know, we were only supposed to be there for three years, and it ended up being 15 years. And Ooh. now my kids are. Um, you know, my kids have like two friends, and um, yeah. my daughter, my oldest daughter, is now. You know, 13, and this is not enough for her. You know, she's never been to public school. She's got one friend. You know, she it's not enough it's not enough for any of us and um and uh so i started to come i started to leave uh i i told myself listen if we're not gonna if we're not getting out of here like if if we're not leaving till you retire which is in five years then you know i'm just i'm not gonna let anything get in my way and i'm i don't care how much it costs in gas money i'm just going where i want to go and i'm getting out of here and i'm going to go um find people in other places and it's just not going to be an obstacle to me that i have to drive places to find my people Mm. So I saw um, that there was an, an event coming up, and it's, it's this event called, it's, uh, there was an event coming up, it's called Pepperfest, it's a local foods, local farms mm. event that um, this organization puts on that's in Pittsburgh, so I, um, I see this, this email, and I just asked, I just emailed this woman, and I asked her, can I, can I come and volunteer for this? I don't, it would be okay if I just stay on someone's couch and just need to come, you know? So they were like, yeah, sure, come on. And so I stayed over, and I did the event, and, and I just fell in love with the place, and the people were so welcoming and, um, and real, and I loved the work, and I just immediately felt really in a good place and so I just kept coming I just kept every every month or so I would have find a reason to come out to Pittsburgh and and help on an event and um and I started staying um I started sta- I, I wasn't staying on random couches I would go and I would stay at um, my dear friends Tammy and Lyle's house you mentioned Lyle before you know, doing the podcast with him um maybe later and he uh I would stay with them and I would do these events and we would have these amazing conversations and we formed a develop, developed a beautiful friendship and, um, and, uh, and my heartstrings were just tied to this place and I would have to get in the car at the end of my stay and drive back to the swamp and it just was breaking my heart more and more every time mm. to have to do it. Were you bringing the kids or were no, you staying? No, Chris was staying at home with the kids. Uh-huh. Um, he was always supportive of doing anything that would help me to remain sane sure. in the swamp. Right. And so, um, <laughs> sane in the swamp. <laughs> staying sane in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge. Um, so, uh, so then there was this point at which, um, he, he started to have trouble with his foot and, and he thought it was a back injury and he got uh, he, there was some things that weren't quite right about the tests that they ran on his back and his nerves and all, but they, they thought they could justify doing a, um, a surgery to fix this problem with his foot. And that it was like there was some compressed nerves or something like that. And anyway, we, they, he, they did the surgery and 
the surgeon even came out and said, I think I found the problem and I think it should be getting better soon, you know, and so we were back in hope world and or we never thought anything would really be like that wouldn't be fixable. Like obviously, you know, this man is invincible. Like he was always the one who could like climb the tree the fastest or shimmy up the rope the fastest. And like when no one could find the wolf, he could find it. And you know, it was the end of the day and the sun's going down and we got to find that mortality signal. And we're all like going as fast as we can up the mountain. And then here comes Chris, like just hoofing it and booking it and just ending up over the rise. You know, like we just couldn't keep up with him. You know, he was so strong. And so there was no way that anything was, that, that there was anything going to be really wrong. So, um, so anyway, he got the back surgery. I come here telling them about the back surgery, everything's good. And, uh, and then the back surgery didn't, um, didn't fix it. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the foot, the so, foot. so he's, it's pain or he's losing no use pain. of it? He's losing the use of it. His foot is, he's not able to, he's having wasting in his calf oh. muscle. Oh. And he's, um, you know, he's always like, he was always working out and running and, you know, doing physical things. And he was getting weaker all around, you know, mm. kind of, he was not able to do as many push-ups, and it was really bothering him that something you know, and then he thought that it was Lyme's disease, and so you know he got on this Lyme's disease idea that it it could be fixed by a lot of people near us on the outer banks were going to this this doctor um, his name is Dr. Jemsek, and I'll just call him out right now and say I think he's a quack and he's a he's a he takes the the money of dying uh, he takes the money of you know that should be the children's <laughs> when the father's dying he shouldn't be taking that money because it's he's not helping anybody and uh because um he's a he's like a this doctor is from Sh he's from charlotte north carolina he lost his license there you know there's all this controversy about lyme's disease and you know supposedly he has the answers and the in the the fda or whoever won't let him do it because they're the evil whatever and so but I feel like he, anyway, I'm getting off track. I don't think he had Lyme's disease. He never did. And, but things were just getting muddy and we were going, we went, finally went to a neurologist and the neurologist didn't want to diagnose it either. And he, everybody was just doing every kind of test didn't that they could. Didn't want to diagnose it? I mean, really, like I could, you get a sense from the guy that he just couldn't bear to, he just couldn't bear that kind of news. Like he just, he couldn't, he could probably sense that we couldn't bear it either. Oh, and so, the, so it was like, let's do this test and let's do that test. And oh, you're a yeah. wildlife biologist. So you've probably been exposed to this thing and that thing. And then let's do the, you know, let's just run every, every test there is to run. Yeah. And then, you know, when we finally did go to, I said, you know, you've got, we've got, you've got to get, you've got to go to the ALS doctor, you know, cause I, I went, you know, you just Google because his voice started to get um, wavery and like mm. you sometimes got the sense that maybe he'd been drinking too much. Right. And he was slurring a little bit times when he shouldn't be. And um, and then a foot drop was going on. So all, you know, you go Google foot drop and s speech slurring. And it's like, you know, ALS. 30 pages of ALS. And um, so, man, I mean, eight months before he got his diagnosis, I walked around the house in the swamp like in a fog of um, fear, terror, anguish, like, you know, 
write your list of dreadful adjectives down and that's how I lived for eight months. I never thought that winter would end. And uh, finally had the had to tell him, and I'm coming here too, at this, also for my sanity um, and able to come, like I couldn't tell the family what I really thought. If I did, they would tell me that I had to have hope and it couldn't be that. Which and family? Just any family, you know, just really, I, I'd call, I'd call my dad or I'd call my mm. mom or I'd, and, I'd, and I'd say this is what I think and it was like I mean I just didn't get the sense that the nobody wanted to know right nobody wanted it to be that and so right. it was like you just got to be hopeful you just got to keep being hopeful and mm. I started getting this this really you know I was like I can't fucking be hopeful like I'm 44 years old and I've got three kids and my if if my husband has ALS and he's gonna, like, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I gotta start, like, there's a fucking tidal wave bearing down on us. And, and last saying, job I had, worry. I made $10 an hour. And yeah. you're telling me to fucking be hopeful? And I have to, I need to get our shit up that mountain. Right. You know? Right. Because, like, I felt like I was just the only one who could see this storm coming that was gonna rip us to shreds. And, um, and so I would, but I would come here, and I would say what I thought was true, and and um, and what I feared, and and I was, and I was listened to. Lyle's dad had died. Lyle's brother had died of cancer. I could sit up and talk to him about the big things. And right. his dad at the time was actually um, dying of. Uh, he was he was dying by starvation and dehydration. He was like choosing to be done with his ordeal and. Uh, so, so anyway, I, um, I told, I told Chris, you got to go to the ALS doctor and, and, and we got to figure this out. And so he, he agreed to it and, um, he, he got the, we got the appointment and the doctor said when he walked in, like we got the diagnosis the day before the actual ALS appointment, which is telling because they don't give you an appointment at the ALS clinic unless they know you have ALS. So they decided that he had ALS before they even sent him to the neurologist for the, it was a confirmation. confirmation. So when Based we walked- on you sent him testing and stuff from We earlier, walked into yeah. the office and the doctor said, I mean, this is the lead, Duke, lead ALS researcher at Duke, Dr. Bedlack. He looked at Chris and I and said, I have never seen a record so thick. Whoever, you, whoever has seen you up until this point really did not want to diagnose you. So, um, right. So by then he was, you know, it, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a year. Um, well, no, he, he was diagnosed on June 2nd and then he, he died on June, June 2nd of 2015 and he died on June 4th of 2016. So, um, but, so what happened was, uh, we stayed in, we stayed in Pittsburgh. We stayed at Tammy and Lyle's when we went to the diagnosis appointment and I, I called them up immediately and I said, it's true. It's true. What I feared all along, it's true. And, and, you know, nobody, I mean, it, it just, it wasn't like, okay, well, we're going to do this. It was just like everybody listened. And then over time, Lyle and Tammy began to, because I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen. We can't stay in the swamp and, and, ha and, and I can't, you know, live in the swamp with the kids and no, no family, no friends around, just how are we going to do this? And I'm going to have to go live in, I said, I'm, I think we're going to have to go live in uh, his sister's basement in Kansas or something. Cause you know, she said, no, we're going to, we're going to figure this something out. And, uh, 
So he was diagnosed on June 4th and June, on July 15th, we moved into the house that we're in now that um, Tammy and Lyle, um, they managed to know, they knew the they knew the lawyer who's working for the bank and they knew the owner of the foreclosure and we got permission to move in and we essentially lived there for six months not knowing whether we were going to be able to stay but once like I heard from Lyle um, yeah I think we could probably work this out like I didn't know for sure that this was going to work out but I was like we need to start packing and thankfully we had um, this amazing couple that was living with us at the time who were also very village minded they were woofing with us world worldwide opportunities on organic farms they were volunteering interning for us and and we would talk about all these big things and I would say you know I, I was like so village minded that I was asking people to move in with us I was like you know you could just move in you know we could garden together and you know pull weeds and it would be great and and people would look at me like I was crazy, but I didn't care. Mm. At that point, I just didn't care. I didn't care how crazy it seemed or how pathetic or sad it seemed to just be like, I don't have any friends. Do you want to be my friend? You know? Um, I'll feed you. Yeah, so they stayed, <laughs> and then they, they were like angels. They literally, mm. um, they, they, they made it so I could cry in the bathroom for months while... Um, they took care of the kids. Like, I don't even know how we got through that eight months before the diagnosis when I knew and he didn't and nobody could talk about it. And, uh, and so they, they just flew into action and they just like, they boxed everything up. We took loads of stuff down to the dump and got rid of it. Like we had, and, and then on like June, June full, July 15th, we had like three kids, me, husband, like a crew of people, everything that we were going to save from our, that was going to make it to the next house from our house. Like we brought our outhouse, our pigs, our donkey, our, our <laughs> rabbits, our chickens, like our piano. Beverly fucking hillbillies. Yeah. You had a I piano? Mean, we had, we brought the piano in the outhouse and Why'd you bring pigs. an outhouse? It's still, it's, people use it right now. It's being used. But isn't it easy to just build an outhouse? It was one of my pride, it was like a proud thing that I, that I oh. worked this deal. This guy built me the outhouse and trade for two goats. So it's oh. like, oh my God. I'm, I'm kind of attached to the outhouse. <laughs> got an emotional <laughs> attachment to your outhouse. That I've never heard before. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah. We, some great moments take place in an outhouse. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you loaded all this stuff up into a truck, some sort of like 18-wheeler or something? We oh, had a lot of trucks. help from people there to get us out here. Yeah, we had a lot of help. And so... Um, and Chris, like, was at that time out he was using a that, cane. That was done. Yeah, he was. Um, he wasn't working anymore. Yeah. He was using a cane. He wasn't able to speak, or he was able to speak very slurred. Uh, he was losing weight, um, and and we got into this house, and uh, like we landed anyway. We didn't know what that was going to look like. We didn't know how long that was going to go on, but we got out of this. It was like. We got out of the swamp, and right. we we were we were landed amongst a group of people who took us in, who right. made this way for us, and who actually held a meeting, like they held like this council before, like what is this gonna? Should we bring should we bring them here? Should we? Um, you know, this is a big deal. You know, this is a yeah. This is not like they took it real serious, and um, and yeah, it's a commitment. You don't. 
invited dying person and his family to join you and then change your mind a month later. Uh-uh, no, no. So we went on, um, Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things that I was seeing and understanding in the world at that point that were giving me a lot of, a lot of, uh, I mean, I just kind of had a knowingness about it that this was what, this was what was meant and this, 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 I didn't have to fear anything for some reason. This, um, I don't know, I don't know when, but the, the video recording stopped a few minutes ago. Oh. Or at some point, I don't know. It's back now. Okay. Um, so, how, I mean, it, it sounds, from the way you're describing this, it's like you are going through all these changes and doing all this research about community and sort of reframing your life um, largely fueled by the unhappiness, like you've ch checked all the boxes and then it's like it still isn't working and then these boxes that had been invisible before started to materialize, yeah. you know, and like, oh. And it, it struck me when you were talking about that how we don't know those boxes are there until we've checked the other ones, mm, you know? so true. Yeah, I was just um, having a conversation with Godi about this, friend of mine about this this morning about how um, you have to understand and learn and you essentially have to collapse in a heap this is how one of my teachers puts it you have to you have to collapse in a heap um, it's not really it's kind of the rock bottom thing but it's mm. it's but it's not it's not because rock bottom is kind of like well you got there and you didn't want to be there but but collapsing in a heap is like learning deliberately the poverty that you're in. Learn not not because you are trying to fix it or just just to essentially just to learn it, just to know it, to know to free yourself. Really, that's why I wanted to learn it. I wanted to know that there wasn't anything wrong with me, and I learned right. every step of the way that there was nothing wrong with me, that that every structure. Every, everything in the architecture of this civilization is, is up against me, the human. And uh, yeah. so essentially just to free myself and to, and to free my parents and everybody I ever thought who wronged me, you mm. know, that, that um, and to free um, my husband and I from this, this thought that we weren't enough for each other somehow, you know, that just because I... I needed others and I needed a community and I needed, like, it wasn't because it wasn't him that wasn't enough, which is, you know, uh, or that the children or our life together wasn't enough. It was that, for me, or that yeah. there was anything wrong with him. Right. It's like, no, this is just not what humans are made for. Is this when you and I got into contact? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because... Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you started talking about how you were writing the Civilized to Death book, and I was, oh, I've got to read that one. You know? So you were following me on Facebook because of Sex at Dawn. You had you read that, or you'd seen the yeah, TED Talk yeah. or something? Yeah, I read the I read Sex at Dawn. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Enough yeah. about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of me? Um, all right. So you, so this committee. No, you said the people here where we are. This is. Pittsburgh. Yeah. We're near Pittsburgh. We're in this beautiful forest. And we're right near Tammy and Lyle's house, yeah. which, which are the people we've been talking about. Um, you said they had a meeting. 
yeah, which, they did. which suggests that there's some sort of structure. There's no structure. It's just uh, it's 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 community. It's just people like there's no this is not an intentional community. There's no um, bylaws. There's no meeting space. There's no um, official anything. Um, so it's, it's just the people who live around here. It's people who have have been drawn together by like mind and shared work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, there, so there are how would that, that have, have worked, though? Like, if, if let's say they, they, there are, I don't know how many, eight, ten people, something at that time. What if one of them was like, yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. Is it a consensus? Everyone has to agree, I or would it be I like, okay, you don't think it's a good idea, so you don't have no, to this, I don't help think it's, out, or how's it work? Well, so it's not like that here. We don't we don't have to. Well, I'm so we don't have to. Um, come to consensus on anything because everybody owns their own land here right so um, and whenever there's a project coming up we can all talk about it and whoever wants to be involved in it can choose to be involved in it I or see. not you know right. there's no expectation that there's a pool of resources that everybody has their hands in and that everybody has to agree on right it's like it's it's really just walking into um, trust and abundance and uh, out of fear and scarcity and so I, I really can only frame it that way because, because nobody, has, nobody has attempted to make anything happen here. It's, 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 uh, it's just happening. You said something yesterday we were walking around. You, you talked about how you started thinking like, mm, it'd be good to have a school here. Yeah. And then suddenly this guy appears who's just finished his master's at Harvard on education and he's very interested in homeschooling and he wants to live here and like, oh, well, that sort of fell together. Yeah. I met him last night. Really cool guy. What's yeah. his name? Stuart Jekyll. Stuart, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's starting the Fantastic Dimensions guy. Family School here in the what is now a village. And we they used to call it an unintentional community. <laughs> unintentional community that's great yeah but that's, really what I'd happened was the um so my my teacher um and you know really somebody that i owe my life to at this point um his name is stephen jenkinson he wrote the book die wise i think on the back cover of his book it says um the way we die the way we care for our dying and the way we carry our dead make or break our capacity for village-mindedness. So when my husband was sick and we knew he was going to die because there's no out clause with ALS, yeah. um, and I'd never been around anybody who died before. Um, I'd never been in the room. I'd never been in the hospital. I'd never been around anybody and know anything about it. And I was terrified. And I knew that this man who I loved, who I knew that it was going to destroy him to just, I mean, it was, <laughs> dying is not the same as being destroyed. He was going to be destroyed in his dying time by the, what was happening to him if he didn't, if he couldn't find why it mattered, you know? It was just another victimhood it was going to become a play out of, of, you know, he fought the fight and he lost the battle and, you know, and, and that fought the fight thing can, can end up being, 
years and years and years of, of just endless dying and endless trauma and endless suffering. And, um, and I just, I had this sense that there was something really major at stake here. And, uh, and I, I mean, outside of just the magnitude of helping him to die, I, there was something in there and I, and I, and I, it led me to, to read this book, Die Wise, out loud with, with my husband um, before he was diagnosed because I had a sense that this was happening. And so, um, so, uh, it's a revolutionary act the way you die. Mm. What and do you mean by that? I mean that in this society where everything is taken from you, everything is taken from us, everything is, is, is removed from our power, we're turned from producers into consumers, it's, it's all taken from us and sold back to us as a product or a service. And, um, and we're just, it's just, there's just no sense in any of that, that that we're necessary for anything or that anything is being asked of us or that we're mandatory or obligated to, to anything other than ourselves. And, um, and, I, and I was watching him um, knowing that the, that the physical deterioration was killing him, um, but that there was, there wasn't, there wasn't, it wasn't appropriate to, to hope it away or to, um, to turn away from it, but to be, but to be a witness to it and that there was something there for us as humans and that there was something there for him. And, and so because of our, so I, anyway, I, I knew that, man, I needed help. We needed help. Like, cause there was no way that I was going to be, we were going to be able to find, cause I, I, when he began, when he got sick, I thought, Oh my God, how, you know, I'm, I've been, I've been on the, the, the heels of the village for a while and I could see that I, I can't be your wife and your lover and your counselor and your wife's and your children, your, the mother of your children and your, mm -hmm. um, your shaman and your, you know, I can't do that. We need a village now more than anything. Yeah. And, um, and having, you know, like they have Le Leche League, right, for breastfeeding mothers. You don't even know how to fucking breastfeed your kids anymore, let alone help somebody to die in a revolutionary way. And um, so, but Stephen, um, Stephen was, was that. And he, um, he gave of himself and he has um, incredible depth of experience actually helping people to die. He knows what, um, what, a, what ALS, what a, what a monster of, of a train wreck it can be. Um, and he, it's interesting because he left the work in, of death and dying. He calls it the death trade because um, there were no takers for his, his uh, he, there were no takers for being obligated to dying well. You know, nobody, no, like, there's, there's the, um, the fight, you know, there's the fight, oh, the and, heroic, the fight and the heroic, the heroic fight and the battle and, yeah. and, you know, it's like the manifest destiny of science. Like we do it because it's there. Yeah. Like, let's just keep on keeping on Death is and the enemy. hope and you yeah. know, the, the, you know, the hope project. It's a, he has, a, it's a wretched thing. It's a, it's a wretched thing to be caught in that and to not be allowed to just 
do the labor of the dying, which is a gift. Labor. It is a gift. Interesting word, you know, the birth labor, the death labor, it's yeah. the, the transition, the work of transition. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's raw. It's just, you're, you're, you have the sense that there's just something of just such magnitude there and, and, and it needs to be paid attention to and witnessed to and, and, and to, and to know your way around that kind of thing, I needed a teacher. So I, I, I sent him an email and I asked him to come. I, I said, I work for this organization, Abundance North Carolina. We bring in teachers. We'd like for you to come. And there was some um, questionability around it. He was like, I can't do that. I'm, his wife said, he's busy. He's coming off a UK tour. It's not going to be a good time. And then I sent her a private email and I said, listen, my husband has ALS and I really, um, I need help. And um, so I got another email saying maybe it's possible. And so they, so he got on the phone with us and he, he laid down such poetic, mythopoetic uh, beauty that really like from that moment on, from that conversation on with Stephen, um, the whole thing changed. And um, I'm not saying it went to, you know, easy or anything like that but 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 Stephen called Chris to um, to dying that his death was a tree that he was planting for his people for his children and that his children would sit under that tree one day if he planted it and they would be they would sit in the shade of it and they would tell stories under it and they would eat of the fruit of it and um, And so that, that became his mentness and to, to, to give a, to, ha, to, to know as a dying person that, that, that you have a mentness, that you are being asked, that people, that you are needed. Um, hmm. and, when, and when I look at the way it could have gone, that we fight this thing, that, you know, like that's, that's the, that's a cruel thing to do to a dying person. Right. To, to not allow them to, to have, because you, you, if you fight it the whole time until there's nothing left to fight and then it's just a losing, you just lost it, then what have you done all along? And right. what does it mean? It means nothing. It's a, it's a small, inconsequential thing that happened to you that shouldn't have happened that sucked and let's get on with it and nobody talk about it and you know just get back to work you know so so um so chris was called to that and we did a lot of um i mean i became the midwife really of of the work around it and and stephen came to town and he did a whole workshop and he, he gave it to us essentially and um and so like when the dragon comes to town, you need the best dragon slayer. And like, that was who I thought Stephen was and that's what we needed. And that's, and I'm really grateful for, for, to him and uh, for him showing up and for him, and for him allowing us to understand that that tree really was a thing, like a real thing. And that, and that the way you die, the way you carry your dead makes or, makes or breaks your capacity for village mindedness. And so I knew that 
having sought the village and having walked towards the village all my life or, or longed for the village. And here we are, we have one. And, um, and my husband is being wrapped up in it. And he, he, he finally understands in, his, in his, the final days of his life that you know, he was enough all along and that we were enough. It's just that we, we needed all of these others to, to be with us in our, in our human moments. And um, so now we are, we are very, I mean, it's shifted to, uh, from an unintentional community to a village. And it's really not, um, it's not anything either that we have, like I said, sought. Like the, the teacher just showed up and um, the, there's so many things that are just showing up and, and that, are, that, are, that are forming this, this place and all these people converging together and bringing, you know, We've got chefs and musicians and artists and um, and Sparkroot Farm and the farm and permaculture and and uh, a green burial ground and um, and and death doulas and and the school and, and the school, school and uh, yeah we're we're so we're really a village making we're we're building a village and we're we're kind of saying like this like we're we're going we don't really know how to do this because mm -hmm. we don't have the big fix right. but we're asking we're at we're holding our hands out and asking we're, we're trying to 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 be mandatory to whatever's whatever falls in our lap you know from from the teacher like the teacher showed up the teacher needed a school so we all figured out how to get a house so that the school can happen um, like what what is what is needed here and how can we be mandatory to it is is how we proceed and um, we're not we're not staking claims anymore. Um, right now we have so so six weeks before my husband died, um, Tammy and Lyle's son died. Um, he overdosed on an accidental. He he, it was his third time. He just I liken it to him kind of taking a twisting his ankle on the cliff and just yeah you know taking a tumble, and. Uh, he was he just was messing just around. Messing around, learning, and trying. How old was he? I think he was 18. Yeah. So six weeks before my husband dies, oh, um, Z is in the ground. And then we sat there and we watched Z's body in the coffin. My husband and my children and I all watched this. We all participated in the funeral. And we had chosen where... Chris had chosen where he wanted to, to be buried, which is just a few feet away from Z's grave. And uh, we chose it together, like this is where we're both gonna be buried. And uh, so he was essentially watching exactly what his funeral was going to be like. We got a, we got a taste of, of what this was gonna be like soon. And, um, and I knew that it was coming. I, I knew from, from working with Stephen where we were in the arc of Chris's days and, and I had a sense about how long it was going to be, and so, um, so he, then six weeks later, he he died in our bed, and we had a home funeral. We had an amazing convergence of people I didn't even know come out of the, come out of the community and 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 clean up all of the trash in the yard that had built up and all the like the the construction materials and create a space on the hilltop for a, for a home funeral and. Uh, and make it beautiful and organize all the details and figure out if we could, you know, just everything. It was immense. 
and um, we had a friend build the coffin that Chris had said he wanted the kind that Dracula had, you know, that shape. Right. <laughs> so it showed up at 6 o'clock the night of the wake, and he had wanted to be, um, he said he wished he didn't have to just die in a bed, that he could be out by a fire, camp a fire or something. So, so the night of his wake, we, um, we asked all the men in the village to carry his coffin out to, with him in it, out to the fire. And we had a ceremony and a drumming and a storytelling and, a, and all that out there. Um, and then we brought him back to the bedroom and placed him on the bed. And they put him in the center of the bed. But I knew that that was going to be my last night where I would sleep with him because people were saying to me, are you going to go sleep in the living room? And, you know, because it was really cold in there. We had to keep it cold. And, uh, and I just thought, no, I, I can't leave him in there by himself and this is going to be the last night I ever sleep with him so I slept beside him with him in the coffin on the bed the children on the, f the children and the dogs on beds on the floor in the room and the next day we had our ceremony and we we put him in the ground in our woods and uh, so um, so now we've we've got these two people two beloveds of ours that have, that are now the earth, that, that are, that, like this is, this is where you find your home, where your, where the boneyard of your dead is, mm -hmm. you know, that is what ties me here now. If I got a wild hair to go off and live in Maui, mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. Because, you know, it's funny, we, American Indians will often talk about like this land this is sacred you can't put a pipeline here mm -hmm. you know our ancestors are here and that's what they're talking that's about that's right yeah yeah so the the tree has been planted and we have been claimed and this thing is happening because it seems to want to happen and and I'm absolutely obligated to the work of of this man who who died in this way that was such a gift to us like I could never dishonor that for a second um, that he he gave that to his children and it's the most profound thing he ever did you know he may not have uh, unendangered those wolves but he did something much bigger than that much more um, of much more consequence in this world, the wake of his consequence is massive and and beautiful and important and and touches many people. Um, and you know, we haven't even talked about how he worked in fields where the poisons were put down and where he we were we lived in a place where the where ALS was essentially clustering. Um, when we talked to the to the ALS doctor about what his exposure was to like cyanobacterial blooms which put out neurotoxins in the air and also to the pesticides in the fields that he was crawling around in for much of his life and about how two houses down from us a man died of ALS two years before um, and how you know we knew people on the Outer Banks who knew five different people who had ALS out there that were unrelated mm. he said you need to move you know so um, and and while my husband's body was being dismantled, by his nervous system is being dismantled by this neurotoxic poisoning, um, 
this insane guy who has got the ear, who doesn't want wolves on his land, he's got money, he's freaking skywriting crazy shit about the government and the wolf project, and it's like, he's, he's, he's got um, the ear of the, of, the, of the state and some senator turned his way, and, and they've decided to, um, to really shut the wolf project down. I mean, it's still under question, but all of the wolf, all the wolf biologists have been turned away from the wolf from the wolf work and they're all being rerouted and redirected onto mm. other projects in the system and and the wolf project is essentially not operating at this point and um, so there's there's a lot of uh, so that was a heartbreaking thing for him you know to yeah. to to be dismantled by poisons by government regulated poisoning while you're right. while the wolves are being the wolf project that he Donated, d dedicated 30 years of his life to is also being dismantled. Hmm. You know, like it was just the most wretched, awful thing. And so I'm seeing this as a silent spring for humans now. And, yeah. uh, and there's a film coming out called, um, oh God, um, Staring Down Fate. And it's about, it's about my husband's life and his work. And, you know, that we're in a troubled time, right? This is a very troubled time. And, and uh, and we've got we've got work to do right now. And um, telling his story is part of the work that we're doing. And um, it's not to make him into a hero. It's to learn the poverty of what's happening. Mm. And and to know that it doesn't have to be this way is really the point of it. And and then and then you can we can all we can all sit in our corners of the world and ask ourselves, what can we do? What can we do here um, to, to have it be otherwise? And it's gonna be different everywhere. Everywhere you go, it's gonna be a little different. Hmm. And it's not gonna come out of national politics. Right. So, speaking of what we can do, you're open to people coming here and helping out. Yeah. Some people. Yeah, you can't handle hundreds of people no, marauding no. through. But no, but we have plenty of camping space, and um, and we can be contacted, and we can start conversation and see what. Uh, but I, but my point is that I want, I, I want people. We're we're developing programming to bring people in. We want to be a portal into village making. We want to be kind of a living laboratory of how it all might be if a we sucker saw. hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of. Yeah. Um, so if people are listening to this and they're thinking, holy shit, that's where I want to be, what do they do? Um, they can, so we have a website. Um, it's it's um, sparkrootfarm.com. We're a nonprofit. I haven't changed that .org over. Um, and you can just send us a, uh, information um, on the contact us page. You could, you could contact us through there. We also accept woofers and we're a ho woof host farm. So you could um, request to woof with us. And um, we're going to be, uh, we're really launching our, our programming in 2018. Um, we're going to be offering permaculture design courses combined with village making. Uh, we're going we're gonna to try to develop a, an internship program for young adults in, in permaculture and village making. And so there's going to be programs like that launched in the future that, um, 
we have we have an African wisdom component in our work where we've got a an amazing guy from the Congo who who comes from a tribe in a, in a lived intact village um, and we have another another guy named Kabui who is from Kenya and both of these people are um, they're here and they're not in their villages and they understand the poverty of Western civilization and how we're not met as humans and they can see it through the lens of comparison between you know it's yeah. it's in their lived memory of, of, of how it how a sane whole culture is and so I've asked them to be um, village making advisors um, because you can't you can't just go into this thinking you can find your way without some help. Same with the, mm. with the, I couldn't have, we wouldn't have known what was at stake. You know, there's a sense of urgency about this that I have, and I think that everybody should have. And, um, and if, if, you've, if there's work to be done, and there's not a lot of time, you need to bring in all the help you can get. And uh, so that's what, I, I'm unashamedly asking for for involvement and and uh, and story and and um, and lived relationship, yeah. not just opinions. Right. And, you know. Yeah. It's just hollow. Right. It's got to be experiential and yeah real. Uh well, we've been talking a long time mm-hmm. and. I mean, there's so many things that I'd love to keep talking about. I'd like to talk about your children's perspective on what was happening and how, you know, so much of, of what you're describing was from the perspective of Chris's friend and wife, but at the same time, you're being a mother. And um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot. And I think this is the first podcast where the guests had to cover for me <laughs> <laughs> well, I was losing I would say to you now that children are incredibly resilient and children um, are a lot they haven't been conditioned in the same way as we have to this idea that death is not proper and oh, that's so, interesting. so they, maybe it's even easier for them there's obviously a, an incredible sadness and a missing <sighs> but they understand what their father did right they understand um how it could have been and they didn't want that for him and um they they know yeah. i am i'm very vocal about what what we're up against and what's what's out there and what and what the trauma is and 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 why we why we're why we behave the way we do sometimes and yeah. and we we talk about all those things and so um, I've been very um, open with them and they they understand what their dad did yeah. and so uh, they they know that the work that we're doing now is in partnership with him like mm. we are carrying him in this work he's not lost to us or he's carrying you yeah, we're carrying each other, and we're developing a whole relationship with, with, uh, with an ancestry that's been ghosted, um, with. Ghosted. You know, we're, we we, when Chris's dad died, he didn't know where he went, and that's why he, he, that's a lot of the reason why he was feeling the terror that he was feeling, mm. um, because 
as Stephen says, when dying people are dying, the wretched terror that they feel is, is about them not knowing who they are dying unto. Hmm. They're just disappearing into a void. Right. And, and that, was a, that was a sadness and a terror and a poverty that Chris carried around him, in him around his father. And, I, and we talked about it and we said, we're not doing that to our children. You are not going to bequeath. That is not the way we're going to proceed. We can't. It's right. not okay. Right. Uh, there's too much at stake here, you know. So. Um, yeah, seeing your death is an incredible opportunity. Oh yeah, and then when death is after this, after you tend to a dying person in this way, and they become the earth and you're in the ground you walk on, then you are. Um, Death is your companion then, and it's companion, the etymology of companion is the one you eat bread with. Hmm. And so you sort of sit down with death every day. And, and then when, you're, when it's your time, um, yeah. it's not a surprise, right. you know. Thanks. Thank you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say It's a big deal If you want to be free Say what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground